Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the astrological forecast for September of 2020. Joining me today is Kelly Surtees and Austin Kopic. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey there. Awesome. And this is episode 269 of the show, and we're recording it on Tuesday, August 25th, uh, 2020, starting at 11.44 a.m. in Denver, Colorado. So let's go ahead and jump right into the month. All right, so sequentially, September starts off with a full moon in Pisces on September 2nd. Then a couple days later, we get our first ingress of Mercury into Libra on the 5th, followed by Venus into Leo on the 6th. The big transit of the month is Mars stationing retrograde in Aries on the 9th of September, which will be retrograde for a few months, followed by Jupiter stationing direct in Capricorn on the 12th. And then a week later, we get a new moon in Virgo on the 17th followed by the usual annual ingress of the Sun into Libra on the 22nd. Mercury zooms through Libra and moves into Scorpio by the 27th of September, and then at the very end of the month we have Saturn stationing direct in Capricorn, squaring Mars at the same time on the 29th of September. So that's kind of the sort of sequential short version of the play-by-play forecast of this month. However, I've also got one other animation here just showing you that was sort of like the calendar version. Um, but our graphic designer Paula Bellomini made a, a round circular calendar as well, and it was animated this month by Hugh Tran um, to show us how those same planetary placements look just from the perspective of the round circular zodiac and in terms of the aspects between the planets, which tell you a large part of the rest of the story. So that lunation in Pisces, that full moon. Um, is actually sextiling Uranus and the Sun is trining Uranus. Uh, then later in the month, we get a new moon in Virgo, uh, which is very interesting and has some really curious aspects that we'll get into later in the episode. But the biggest thing really happens towards the very end of the month, and it's that station of Saturn in late Capricorn, which actually actually stations very close to Pluto. This is the closest that Saturn will get to the Saturn-Pluto conjunction again for the entirety of the rest of the year for the next like 30 years before it starts separating and moves on. And almost simultaneously, we get Mars squaring Saturn right at roughly the same time. So that ends up being like the, the culmination of the month in some ways when we get that, that square between Mars and Saturn with that Saturn stationing. So that's the quick uh, overview of this month. Um, why don't we get into going through it sequentially, week by week? Um, do you guys have before we start any? Did we come up with like a title for this uh, month or like a, a main theme? Austin, did you have a suggestion? Well, usually the titles grow out of the conversation. Um, the theme is, oh shit, there's another planet in late. Degrees of a cardinal sign. Yeah, uh, Mars late degrees cardinal sign joining everything else. Well, no, no. When every because we have both malefics at the end of cardinal signs, um, that oh shit was oh no Venus is there oh no Mercury is there oh no the Moon's there again. Yeah, right. That yeah. that's that is the theme. Definitely. Uh, last month I was talking about August being sort of like when you get to the top of a roller coaster. Uh, but also, I was thinking this month that if last month was kind of like the precipice, then this month is like the plunge where you really get into the final part of some of the most pivotal aspects of the year, the pivotal transits. 
I know when we did the year ahead forecast, um, we focused a lot earlier in the year on like the pileup of planets in Capricorn with like Mars and Saturn and Jupiter and Pluto there in March and April. But then September was one of the other big and what seemed to be one of the more tense months of the entire year because of a similar pileup of planets and cardinal signs. Definitely. Yeah, I um I had like a top three worst months of the year in in okay. my year ahead. Um yeah. and yeah, it was March and then March, September, and October. And I think September might have had it by a nose when I was looking Edged at out. it last year. Having looked through the next two months, I don't know. I think it's gonna be a, a photo finish between September and October. Uh, I'm not sure September is worse or that October is better. So I don't know mm. if that's like a positive or a negative reassessment, but um, <laughs> there's some tough stuff. And I like that. Uh, I brought up to you the other day. I really like that analogy for a couple reasons. One um, is that Mars has been um, edging towards the retro its retrograde station for a while now. And mm. so when when any planet but particularly mars is moving towards a retrograde station that means it's moving towards a stop and so it's going slower and slower and slower and what that feels like being a human being um is that there's a uh, it's sort of uh, it, it's as if there's exactly the same amount of energy but it doesn't get to go anywhere and there's often a feeling of increasing tension and pressure which is uh, which has a nice analogy to that getting to the top and then also september and october really just um that one flows into the other um or crashes into the other i don't know if flowing will be our experience um, but one, mm -hmm. they one becomes the other quite quickly, and it's really the same set of primary configurations getting triggered over and over again. So it's going to feel like one block, um, and so you know the the wild ups and downs, and you know the this part with the screaming um, with the roller coaster makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, I like that. So super super serious September. I think that was one of the names we were kicking around. We'll see. If that works oh, yeah. out, super serious September. Super serious September. Yeah. All right. Let me share the chart for right now. Um, so, this is our meeting chart for our little quasi election today. Right now, Mars is, we're just coming off of the first exact Mars Saturn square this year, the first of three. And um, that's happening this month in August. And then next month, we'll get the second square towards the very end of the month, right around the time that Saturn stations. Um, so, so that's kind of we, important. We don't actually get the third one until until next year. Sign and okay. the signs they both changes change signs. By yeah, the they time both change signs before number three. Mm, okay, um, but that's an important thing because it might be part of a sequence in terms of at least for mm -hmm. some people, if you have planets yep. in late late cardinal signs, it could be opening up uh, something, which will continue on and sort of come back as a theme. In sort of echoes or in uh, having a beginning and a middle and an end. All right, so let's take a look at September and let's open by looking at the very first thing essentially that happens in September, which is the lunation, the full moon mm. that happens right at the very beginning of the month at 10 degrees of Pisces. So here we go. So full moon, 10 degrees of Pisces. It happens late on September 1st or early on September 2nd, depending on where you're at. Um, 
Mercury is still in Virgo at this point. Um, unfortunately, simultaneously, Venus is kind of getting hammered and it's completing an exact opposition with Saturn from 25 Cancer to 25 Capricorn at the same time. And after that, Venus will move into also a square with Mars. Uh, we open the month with Mercury in Virgo at, at later degrees of Virgo, but it's moving pretty fast at this point. So it doesn't actually spend a lot of time in Virgo in September and moves into, into Libra pretty quickly. And then it only spends about three weeks in Libra before moving into Scorpio. Um, Mars is already slowing down and is super, super slow at this point because it's pretty much already almost stationary at 27 degrees of Aries and getting ready to station at 28. And Jupiter is also slowing down at 17 degrees of Capricorn. So how do you how do you feel about this lunation, Kelly? Or what are your thoughts on a full moon in Pisces at the beginning of September? Look, the full moon in Pisces, I do like. I love a nice uh, mid season, mid mid Virgo season chance to uh, you know take a break and chill out. Mm-hmm. It's hard to go past the fact that Venus is opposing Saturn on the same day, and that creates this almost conflicting experience where the moon in Pisces, the full moon in Pisces might be, you know, go slow, take a break, escape, you know, follow your feelings. It's, it's, it, you can imagine this full moon in Pisces is going to trigger a lot of emotion, maybe some intuition um, that could be overwhelming emotion or just feeling a lot. And then mm-hmm. the Venus Saturn opposition, unfortunately has a level of, of discomfort or pleasure denied or something delayed or, or dealing with a challenge related to a person or a partnership that's really important to you. So it's, it's, I quite like the full moon. I think the full moon on its own, making those aspects to Uranus is is kind of nice and, and shifting things, but not in an overly dramatic way. But it's hard to ignore that Venus is opposite Saturn on the same day. Yeah. I mean, there's almost like a, a liberating sense to the full moon, having that very close sextile with Uranus uh, from 10 degrees of Taurus to 10 degrees of Pisces, and then the very close trine between Uranus and the sun at 10 degrees of Virgo. But then you're right. There's this really weird contrast with the the coldness and the sort of off-puttingness of Venus opposing Saturn at the same time. Yeah, and although it is the opposition with Saturn, which is exact that day for Venus, um, Venus has spent the last couple days opposing Pluto and applying to that opposition with Saturn, and then we'll spend the next couple days in a square with Mars. And mm. so, you know, this is this this uh, this this qualifies for part of my suggested theme, my first suggested theme, which is, oh no, there's another planet at the end of a cardinal sign. And so, and the reason the oh no is, is basically a planet there will get hammered by all all of the difficult things that are going on. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really rough, basically half week, week for Venus. Um, we're not really going to feel uh, Venus doesn't really escape from that till it escapes the sign, and so yeah, it's it, it's what that, Kelly that is one saying, of the planets that gets like clear of all of that and is in relatively good shape this month is Venus once it makes it into Leo. Yeah, after after doing the gauntlet, um, right? And so you know, Kelly, you were saying, you know, they're usually um, the Pisces full moon being a water full moon. Um, there's a nice, uh, that's sort of a like, yeah, take time to catch up process emotionally. Um, but if we look at what, what is there to feel at this point, mm. Venus provides yeah. a fair amount of what there is to feel. And so that doesn't necessarily feel super good, but, 
actually, Chris, as you were talking, um, you know, about the liberatory um, or freedom-seeking nature of Uranus, which has a nice relationship to both the sun and the moon here, as well as the fact that Mercury is in really good condition with the sun. Um, yeah. It's almost like, what can we do to um, repair or improve the source of some of these difficult feelings, right? Um, maybe not everything, right? we can't fix the world, um, but it, it, this is almost more, how should we say, about f fixing, improving, assessing what's going on on a um, you know uh, emotional and psychic level, um, and then doing doing some tweaking because that right. that Mercury and that Uranus are in a really good position to to help. Um, and and yeah. Mercury is also in a perfect trine with Saturn, right? And that's another thing I was thinking, like Saturn. Um, is bringing some, uh, has brought, is bringing, will bring some difficulties, but that Mercury is in a really useful place to diagnose exactly what those are and to come up with maybe not, maybe in some case fixes, but at least adjustments, at least meaningfully um, useful adjustments. Right. Yeah, I had honed in on Mercury there as well, because the last aspect that Venus will in interact with before she changes signs is the sextile with Mercury. So she does have a really rough patch, you know, running the gauntlet of dealing with uh, Saturn, Pluto, and then Mars. But there is this, the final aspect she makes is this sextile to Mercury, who, just as you're saying, Austin, is able to maybe point the way towards a solution or a tweak or some sort of small but significant change that can lead to an improvement of some kind. That reminds me of earlier this month, I did an episode with Carol Taylor on aspect patterns. Uh, finally, I've been meaning to do an aspect patterns episode forever, and it was a really good discussion. But one of the things that came up was, one, the idea that aspect patterns are any close aspects and configurations in a chart that involve three planets or more. But that sometimes when you have a hard aspect between two planets, like this opposition between Venus and Saturn, and some of the coldness or the the hard feelings that come along with that, that if there's another planet that comes in, a third planet, and makes soft aspects to those two planets in the opposition, that it can help to um, mitigate them or help to find a release for that opposition so that you can find a solution to whatever the problem is that it presents. So uh, perhaps part of the solution here is like communication or talking with Mercury swooping in and making that sextile to Venus and the trine to Saturn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mercury ends up looking like the key from a couple different angles. When I was looking at this, I was looking to see if Venus would be fully and uh, fully besieged for a few days between yeah. an opposition mm -hmm. to Saturn and a square to Mars, and mm -hmm. it's not. Because Mercury, Mercury sends supplies. Oh, Mercury is a little the, little supply the, drop that gets in there. I see. Uh, nice. Which that is, is really nice. Uh, yeah, because yeah. Mercury does not have the same uh, luck later in the month when it gets in between the same hard aspects between Mars and Saturn. So that's a good point. Um, also, what we have there is a T square between uh, the opposition between Venus and Saturn, and then the square with Mars. Uh, so that's really tense aspect, and Venus is not in great shape. But perhaps there's a solution that's coming through Mercury. Uh, but the fact that it's taking place on a full moon indicates like a culmination of events or bringing to light of something. So maybe it's that culmination of events, or it's bringing to light something that's difficult emotionally, or could present a, an obstacle in 
relationships or relating with another person in your life, but through uh, sort of dialogue and talking through it, there's a, an opportunity for it not being the worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. All right. So yeah. um, that's the very first thing at the top of the month is that lunation and that full moon in Pisces. Um, other than that, though, we pretty quickly after that, um, things start to shift and we start getting some ingresses. Um, our first ingress, first two ingresses take place on the 5th and 6th, and that's Mercury moving into Libra on September 5th, and then Venus moving into Leo on September 6th. Um, so that ingress of Mercury, though, is really important, and Mercury's playing a surprisingly pivotal role this month, even though it's not retrograde, but it is showing up in interesting and odd places throughout the course of the month. Um, like I said, Mercury's moving really fast though, so it doesn't actually end up spending a ton of time in Libra this month. And I think it zooms through in, in something like three weeks, right? Yeah, it's just over three weeks, which is not as fast as Mercury can go, but obviously not as slow as when it's uh, in the sign it'll be retrograde. Right, which is what we're looking forward to next month when we get Mercury retrograding in Scorpio. Um, so there's that ingress of Mercury into Libra there on the 5th, and then the next day we get Venus moving into Leo. Venus finally gets clear of Mars and Saturn, so there's a bit of a sigh of relief, and we don't really have a lot of hard aspects, at least to challenging planets um, this month, although there is a square with Uranus that Venus will hit a little bit later on at 10 degrees of Taurus. Yeah, I think that's sort of the only big aspect Venus and Leo will make because she's not in a position to aspect the planets in Capricorn. She will probably interact with Mars towards the very end of her time in Leo um, mm. just by trying. But yeah, it's, she's definitely stepping out of the, the Cardinal Crunch territory and into uh, a relatively a more calm space. Right. Yeah, and Leo is not um, Venus's favorite place to be, mm -mm. but it's a place that's not. Um, uh, it's it's a place that's not being attacked, right? Whereas some yeah. of the other signs, there's a lot of um, heavy Mars, Saturn, Pluto action, and so simply not being um, in those crosshairs is uh, a big improvement for a planet in its actions uh, during this period of time. For sure. And so for the Mercury ingress, there's a as soon as Mercury comes into Libra, it's in a sign that's going to interact with the other cardinal sign stuff. But Mercury has a couple of about half of its visit through Libra. It's just approaching Jupiter and somewhat mm -hmm. protected, I guess. Um, so it's more mm -hmm. the second half of Mercury's tour through Libra where things get a little bit hairy. Yeah, I love that that placement of Jupiter at 17 degrees of Capricorn this month because it's just protecting any planets moving through early cardinal signs because then they're applying directly to Jupiter in that square first, which I think actually really helped out this month or over the past month when Venus was still applying to Jupiter uh, and applying to that opposition with Jupiter. That was a lot different compared to uh, getting closer to that opposition with Saturn and that square with Mars. Um, so that applying square between Mercury and Jupiter lasts all the way up until about the 16th or 17th of the month when Mercury completes the square with Jupiter. And then after that point, it's it's just applying straight to Pluto first at 22 Capricorn by a square, which it completes around the 20th. 
and then eventually to Saturn at September 22nd and Mars right after that on the 23rd. So that is Mercury's trip this month. Um, I don't know if it's if we're trying to go sequentially, if it's a good place to mention, since we picked out a Mercury in Virgo election to try to take advantage of the very last last bit of that. Should I throw that in here or keep yeah. it till later? Yeah, let's go ahead and do it. All right. So um Lisa Scheim and I were looking through elections for this month and it's funny because one of the things Lisa said is it'd actually be a good month for elections, if not for Mars stationing retrograde and um, Mars squaring Saturn. So basically, if not for all of the difficult <laughs> astrology stuff that's really terrible this month, it would be a great month to get some electional charts out of it. Um, so that being said, the electional chart for this month, it takes place very early, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to mention it early in the show, um, because it takes place on September 2nd. 2020, starting at about 7 a.m., so just after sunrise um, that morning. So basically, just cast the chart for September 2nd and then set it to about 7 a.m. local time, whatever time, just 7 a.m. in your city. And what you'll end up with is a chart with about the middle degrees, about 15 degrees of Virgo rising. And the sun has just risen over the horizon at 10 degrees of Virgo, so it's a day chart. And Mercury is still in the sign of its domicile and exaltation at 24 degrees of Virgo in the first house, both the first quadrant house and the first whole sign house. So unfortunately, by early September, it's too late to get Mercury still applying to trine Jupiter. So it's actually separating from that trine with Jupiter at 17 degrees of Capricorn. However, it does have a nice sextile with Venus which is at 25 degrees of Cancer, which is in the superior position. So that's a helpful sextile towards Mercury uh, with Venus in the 11th house. And Mercury is applying to a very grounding uh, trine with Saturn at 25 degrees of Capricorn. Uh, so this is a super earthy, super grounded type Mercury election, which would be good for Mercury-related activities involving like communication of different sorts, whether that's like writing or, or talking or speaking or what have you, um, but also especially doing it in a very grounded or sort of formal way with that very nice applying trine with Saturn and Capricorn. Um, the moon is at 14 degrees of Pisces, so this is just after the full moon. So the moon has just barely started waning at this point, but it's still pretty pretty bright since we're only four degrees off of the opposition in the full moon with the sun. Uh, it's in the seventh house, and it's actually applying with reception to a sextile with Jupiter. So this kind of emphasizes even more some of what we already saw with some positive 11th house indications for friends and groups and um, growth over time with Venus in the 11th house by also making the ruler of the 11th house in the seventh house of partnership um, almost sort of bona fide or at least well placed through an application to a benefic. So that's pretty much this chart. Good for communication, other Mercury activities, good for 11th house activities, not bad uh, for partnership, and pretty good for career matters since Mercury is ruling really the 10th house. So that is the electional chart. You guys have any comments about that one? Yeah, look, I'd be I, I think a little careful. Go ahead. I was just gonna say I I kind of like the Mercury trine Saturn aspect. 
It's not happy, but it can be, you know, we often talk with Mercury stuff about, you know, don't sign things here because Mercury is not in a great condition or it's retrograde or what have you. But Mercury trine Saturn to me feels like this would be a good time to make an agreement that could be long lasting. You're going to be cautious. You've done your research. You're not going to over promise anything with Mercury trine Saturn. So there's a level of like clear thinking, maybe paying off or coming together in a, a practical type of agreement of some kind. Right. Uh, something that's really got, got a bit of substance. Very uh, c- careful or deliberate or substantive communication. That's Those are good keywords. Yeah. What were you going to say, Austin? Oh, well, first, I agree with that. And I think that <clears throat> if we're talking about Mercury being configured to a malefic, um, that can also be addressing a problem in a meaningful mm. and useful way. Right, bringing the malefic signification in, um, I would probably lean much harder onto Mercury for this one, which is first house as well as um, those significations we just discussed, as well as tenth house. That that Venus is um, getting hit pretty hard by Saturn and Mars, so I, I would probably lean away from the eleventh house, the like big social. I, I would not use it for a charm offensive. Yeah, that's that's definitely fair. Um, but yeah, so deliberate communication, and um, you're right about because uh, Mercury Saturn aspects, especially flowing ones, are good for uh, like critical thinking and critical communication, which is also something Virgo can sometimes excel at. So it's like you get a double double threat Mercury act- action going on this month. Totally. Yeah, I think there's. I was just thinking about these aspects yesterday, and I thought, yeah, there's something really strategic or you know we've done you've done your research or very diligent uh all of the things we're talking about it's like a functional mercury like respecting the rules of engagement but finding a way forward anyway or, or something along those lines yeah and the very last thing it i, I meant partic- to mention that we'll go ahead i was gonna say i think it would be particularly nice for doing a research project particularly historical research bringing in making a place for Saturn in a useful way. Mm. That's really funny that you say that because I started my book, uh, Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, available in fine bookstores everywhere under a Mercury and Virgo election back in like 2006 or something like that. So that is exactly what you could use an election like this for. And yeah. um, the, the very last thing I wanted to mention, the way, one of the reasons I liked it and liked using a Mercury election this late in Mercury's Travel travels through Virgo, even though it's separating from Jupiter by this point, it's also separating from that opposition with Neptune, uh, which I really appreciate to get a much more grounded and less fuzzy-headed sort of Mercury in Virgo applying to Saturn. All right, so that's the election for the month. Uh, Lisa and I found three or four other electional charts for September, and you can get access to those by becoming a patron on the $5 tier through our page on Patreon. And we'll be recording and releasing a 45-minute episode talking about those electional charts in the next few days. All right, so back to the month. Um, what is we've talked about our, our first lunation, we've talked about our two ingresses. Um, is it time it's to Mars station? It is, yes. It's time to get to the elephant in the room. <laughs> the big elephant in the room. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so it's important to note that this Mars station happens. With just a couple days after Venus and Mercury's um, ingresses, and although Venus gets in um, that ingress into Leo is an improvement for Venus, what that kind of means 
is we'll be like, oh, that's, you know, we're no longer, our attention is no longer drawn to that problem, but we have, um, we have uh, a fresh bouquet uh, <laughs> of problems being- <laughs> You're going to call it a uh, bouquet? Being, yeah, it's a bouquet. Um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, we have a, a fresh, fresh bouquet uh, of issues that's being uh, presented immediately by Mars's retrograde station. Yeah, so this has been building up for a while now. When did when did Mars first go into Aries? It was just, um, I end guess, right at the end of end, end of, of June. June. So, so 27th of June, it's been building up to this. And some of the topics probably associated with the retrograde may have started to develop either in the world in general or in some people's lives in particular if this <laughs> they, retrograde they may is going to be. They may have started to develop. Yeah, may have. Uh, we uh, say, we it, say as a couple states are on fire, as um, we're coming into what will likely be a record-breaking season of uh, civil unrest, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, some themes they may have, may started, have to develop. started to notice. Some some themes. So, uh, however, when a planet stations, I was thinking about this the other day because there's a little bit of like disagreement, a little bit of inconsistency sometime in the astrological tradition about whether a retrograde is like a weakening of the planet or a strengthening of a planet. And there's different authors that say different things, but it seems like part of the answer is that when a planet slows down and stations retrograde, it's just sitting at the same degree for a very long time, which is really unusual and out of the ordinary. And for that reason, it causes sort of an intensifications of the significations of the planet at that time, for better or worse. So the way I look at it is that while some of those themes may have started and we may have seen some things start to develop, there's going to be real intensification of some of that energy, especially around the time that that Mars stations retrograde on September 9th. Yeah, there's so it's right. So it's an intensification if we have the planet, if we imagine the planet, you know, keeping an eye on whatever is in its degree. Then it keeps the it keeps an eye um, on like a beamy laser right. eye, like um, the eye of on Sauron. A v- yeah, yeah, on a very like, eye of Sauron with fire beams. Um, <clears throat> on a very on a very small set of topics, right? You wake up and Mars is still looking at the same thing. Um, so we have that, but it's it it's so it's an intensification, but it's a change of motion. Right. Instead of heading towards a thing like, oh, it looks like it's all going in this direction. Um, you know, Mars basically does literally does a roller coaster loop. If you look at it in the sky, if you watch uh, its progress through its retrograde. And so there's not only there's not. And when we flatten that and look at it from the top on a chart, it looks like forward back forward. Um, but if we look at the whole thing, there's also a change in terms of up and down. And so there's a little bit of a roller coastery feeling. Um, and you, you may find it interesting that in um in the the Shadbala <clears throat> um assessment of planetary strengths, one of the uh uh the a retrograde motion is considered to be an intensification of strength because the planet is considered to desire the same thing much more intensely. Its capability is not improved, but it because its desire for something is strengthened, that thing is more likely to come about. Right. So like you, you know, it's like something you care about a lot. Even if even if you're not even if your skills and abilities aren't different, if you just really, really care about something, it's much more likely to come about. 
not necessarily likely to go easier, but I really like the idea of strengthening via desire. I thought that was cool. Yeah, that is that is good. I like that. Um, so one of the things though that Mars does when it's stationing, I mean, one one of the broader overall things we have to talk about is that this begins a few month retrograde period that's going to last all the way until I believe the middle of September. It doesn't station direct because Mars will start moving backwards from twenty eight degrees of Aries to twenty seven. So on and so forth, and then I think it gets all the way back to what, like fifteen degrees of Aries by mid-November. Yeah, about fifteen mm-hmm. Aries by about the fourteenth of November. Uh, so it stations direct uh, here in the states on Friday the thirteenth. There you go of November. Gotta love it. Yeah, so well, it's almost a solid it, two months period. Uh, yeah. I liked. What you were saying, Austin, about that idea of that intensification of desire, like just really honing in on something and not letting go. And, you know, when we often think about a planet retrograde, it's, it's you know, the idea, the symbolism we often use in our language is it's bouncing around the same degrees over and over again. So it's like, I've got to figure this topic or this thing in my life out. I've got to go deeper. I've got to mull over it more. I've got to pr- be present with it for an extended period and and sort of in a more intense way. Uh, I like that idea that you can get improvements from doing that. Yeah, and one of the things in terms of intensification of desire is it's stationing uh, retrograde within three degrees of squaring Saturn. So that's really huge, and that means that that's one of the signatures that's really being intensified at that time. Is not just Mars stationing and slowing down and hitting that degree of twenty-eight degrees of Aries, but also um, really grinding, especially over the course of the next month when it's super close to Saturn again and before eventually squaring it exactly, is just an intensification of some of that energy that we might want to talk about again of what Mars squaring Saturn indicates that we've kind of been feeling already, especially over the past month since we're just now having the very first square uh, here in late August, but there's going to be a return to that that's going to be felt perhaps even more intensely in September. Yeah, well, so those of us with the rising degree in late cardinal signs have been uh, feeling it rather consistently for a while now. Yeah, of just a huge expenditure of energy, but also grind, being feeling ground down and feeling worn down. Mm-hmm. Is yeah, that it's a lot. Expect, is that is that the nice way of how you describe how you're feeling right now? I would say that that is all accurate. Okay. You know, part of uh, it's so one one thing I will add that's <clears throat> not too horribly negative. Um, well, so one, um, it's been easier to feel horribly negative, um, which is something I'm pretty good at normally. But this has made me even better. Sure. Um, so, so <clears> like no, but pe- pe- pessimism, or is pessimism one of the traits of like a Mars Saturn or Saturn aspects in general? Yeah. Well, I would say it's frustration, right? Saturn is mm, like frustration. Oh, this this thing sucks. Mars is and Mars is like yeah, but maybe we can through through effort um, maybe we can make it better. But they're in right. such a place where it's just like this sucks, and I'm mad and can't do anything about it. And then that just sort of bounces. So there's a little sometimes, despite Mars wanting to push through it and say, well, if we just expend extra energy to get through this, maybe we can overcome it. But then in some instances, Saturn will still say no, you you can't, and it's yeah, just well, like a wall in, that you can't proceed past. Yeah, and I mean, I think. 
we'd all agree that if we have to, uh, if we have to pick one very simple, like experiential word word for Mars hard Mars Saturn aspects, um, it's frustration. Hundred percent right? effort is pushing against the wall. Yeah, right? Saturn and doesn't the wall represent is not moving. things. Yeah, the, the Saturn represents that which is enduring. Um, and if it's a problem, it will take a long time to come about. If it's a good thing, it will take a long time to come about. And Mars specializes in short bursts of energy, bursts of intense energy, um, which will not solve the ambient issues. Um, <clears throat> what I was going to say is one of the things that I was reminded of, uh, which I sometimes forget, is, in, is that rough mars transits very often just look like being super busy like there's mm. uh there is more to do that can possibly be done while still maintaining um you know a healthy and balanced lifestyle um and that you're there's just a push 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 um and that that is you know in and itself malefic and not necessarily pleasant but it's also not uh the calamity from the sky or the disastrous accident that is sometimes imagined, which Mars sure. and Saturn can deliver, but most of the time that's not the case. Yeah, it's just hard work or or stop and go or other good keywords for Mars Saturn. Yeah, that's reminding me. You know, one of the the way the one of the ways we explain malefic planets is we describe their extreme in their nature. So they're extremely hot or extremely cold or extremely dry. And what you're uh, touching on there, Austin, I guess, is the manifestation of extreme behaviors or focuses. Or, you know, if you're if, if you're extremely busy in your work, that can be great professionally, but it can cost you in other areas of your life, health-wise or personally or professionally or in terms of your mindset. So Maybe that's something that we should all be thinking about is where am I going to extremes in something in my life right now and what is that costing me elsewhere perhaps? Have you have you had any um have either of you had any clients lately that have been getting hit by the Mars Saturn square, the first one that's going exact right now, and that have had interesting manifestations of that that you can like talk about anonymously? Have you seen any any offhand, Kelly? I mean, the one that comes to mind is a client that I consulted with a couple of months ago. So it wasn't in the thick of it, but we talked about this coming up and um, she had given me permission to talk a little bit about her chart from a teaching perspective because I thought it was a great example of Mars Saturn. So she has a Capricorn second house and an Aries fifth house. So we talked about the Mars retro in the fifth house to do with kids. Now, this was a more mature woman kind of nearing retirement age. So I'm like, you know, these would be your adult children. And the situation had to do with one of her adult children was still receiving quite a lot of financial help from her. And she was like, I need to put an end to this because I want to retire. And now I'm seeing that helping this adult child of mine out financially is having a negative impact on me. So we talked a little bit about some of the timing and, you know, how it can feel really difficult to make these changes. But, you know, the Saturn in the second house for her was like, you're getting that reality check around what you need to do for money. And that may involve saying no over here to the Mars in the fifth house, you know, um, money to do. Well, not The Mars in the fifth isn't necessarily money to do with children. It was how the square aspect was linking the topic of children, fifth house and the second house of money. And then knowing that in this aspect, Saturn wins in the end. So if the child doesn't get what they want, we need to put some limits or we need to restrain or cut back there. So that was a really interesting situation. 
um, you know, and, and she was able to, she was already feeling it. And then we could talk about how this was going to be the big project for her through the second half of the year was to navigate that with, with her adult child. I love that. That's a really straightforward example of just the connection between the two houses and their basic significations of the second house of finances and the fifth house of children and just what happens when two transiting planets are making a hard aspect and, and tying together those two houses in your life. So people could think about that in terms of what houses are Mars and Saturn transiting for me right now and how might those two two houses be linked through some sort of tension in my life, especially if I have personal planets there in late cardinal signs or especially if they're activated as time lords or what have you. Yeah, that's really good. You can also you think about how so the United States has a Sag rising and therefore has Aries in the fifth. And you think about how the next couple months are going to be on kids. Yeah. This, you know, the beginning of this school year. Right. Yeah. So that's one of the big things that's it's just happening. It's just starting to develop right now is so many children have gone back to school, both from very young age all the way through college level, but then there's some like um breakouts of COVID that are now starting to happen at like college campuses, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if we're talking about the probability of, you know, I guess what people are calling a second wave, or some people might call a third wave, as well as um, a a lockdown response to that, um, there's a really good chance that a lot of kids will have their their school year interrupted, and that you know it's not just uh, it's it's not just an inconvenience, right? Um, it's a disruption of their total social world. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, just one of right. the things you, you can. Well, and that's funny also. I, I, though, I think because I, I don't of, think when, the school year will proceed normally. Will be my is my um, shocking prediction. That's funny though, because one of the criticisms is that perhaps some schools have been too quick to like accept, especially like universities, to try to get people to come back and to have the same rates for like tuition and the sort of financial incentive to try to like just keep things as normal even if things aren't as normal and almost like a mundane version of that same tension between like the second house of finances and fifth house of children. Mhm. Right, there's that that second house fifth house square showing up again. Yeah. Um yeah, I was never a big fan of the Sibley chart, but this year is really been testing my my skepticism for it pretty pretty hard, and I might be a convert. It's pretty good, pretty yeah, good. It's pretty, a, little, a little tough. Uh, we'll see. Jury's still out. We'll see how this election goes and if we survive. Um, there's actually some other yeah, interesting well, stuff related well, to that. that I, what might I would be worth what I would give mentioning. you as an as an out with the Sibley chart is you can regard mm-hmm. it as a valid chart that is useful and tells you things without having to say that it is the only chart because mm-hmm. this is not a human being. This is. Um, this is a nation, um, and the land. Um, the land was here before the nation was. There's a lot of things. This, this um, United States didn't just pop out uh, of a mother, right? So yeah. it doesn't have the same sudden beginning. So I think that allows us room to say, you know what? Multiple charts might be valid. I think this one is, but that doesn't mean that there's no other chart that could tell us something. Mm. For sure. Very good point. Um, another good point that. Uh, both Lisa Shyam and Kelly mentioned independently recently was uh, that Mercury in the U.S. chart that's at 24 degrees of Cancer is really getting hit by that opposition from Pluto uh, right now, transiting Pluto opposing it, as well as 
pretty much all the other hard cardinal transits that are happening right now. And one of the interesting manifestations of that lately, of course, has been what's happening with the United States Postal Service, basically, and the, the attempts to um, basically take it apart or sabotage it in order to sway the election. Take it um, apart. They're literally removing post boxes while we watch. It's like a public dismantling, let alone what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. I mean, the reports are saying that there's like hundreds of um, what mail sorting machines that are being removed from different post office centers all over the country. And there's like 23 senior officials that have been displaced. And there's mailboxes, like street mailboxes being removed from the streets in many cities around the country. So that's a very literal, if we just think about Mercury as signifying, as it has always done traditionally, like messengers or messages, it's really interesting just abstractly aside from like being an American that's like sort of horrified what what's happening but there's also like a abstract intellectual way where it's interesting how we're sort of watching this in real time as the dismantling of the postal service with some of those heavy transits hitting the mercury in the chart of the country mm. yeah yeah that's that's very literal very good also note that in the sibley chart the mercury rules the 10th house which is the um, uh, leaders, people in positions of power, um, and I would say that we're we're not in a great place there. That yeah. there, there's some tension sure. <laughs> surrounding these topics. Yeah, so- well, and it's a, it's an, an attempt to maintain power or to to you know to sway the election, which decides who is in power for the next four years or what have you. Mm. So right, you well, and that, that sort of- actually. Yeah, so there's the con- there's the obvious connection to the tenth house, which uh, again in a nation's chart represents leaders; those who are in charge, et cetera, et cetera. And we've got Mercury doing its just planet thing. Mercury in any in any nation's chart would have to do with uh, message delivery, but in the U.S. chart, it also rules the tenth, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, they're literally one of the biggest questions that is being argued about is do we do mail-in voting right which Mm. is what connects to this but it's literally it's mail-in voting for who gets to live in the 10th house right so these things are are Mm. linked very clearly well and and even in an interview like the guy currently in charge of the 10th house the president said in like an interview (laughs) with fox news recently that he was actively like he said very outright very openly that he was actively that he was trying to hinder mail-in voting by holding up funding to the post office so that it wasn't even something that was like subtle or sort of sort of covert or something. It was like very open, like this is sort of what we're doing. All right. So yeah. um Austin, you had actually mentioned that some of the things surrounding that were probably put in place back when Mercury was going retrograde in Cancer uh over the past few months. Uh, no, right? it was it was after the retro I was um, I, I didn't get a chance to double check this, but didn't this sort of um, arc yes. of uh, with the post office didn't it start when Mercury was at the end of Cancer, getting nailed by Mars and Saturn? Um, wasn't yeah. that uh, wasn't that like when this really got got st- uh, this this arc got hot? Yeah, roughly. What yeah. what happened was they announced the new Postmaster General uh, May sixth, twenty twenty, and their in- intention to install somebody that was like a political person in this otherwise neutral government role on May 6th and then he actually began the job on June 16th so that was like right in the mix of some oh, of that really so that heavy was in the stuff. retrograde 
or sorry, Venus retrogrades. That's a very different time. I was thinking of the end of July when Mercury was. I think um, that there Mars was Saturday. something in mid to late July where DeJoy, I think his name's DeJoy, is, I, might, I might not be pronouncing it correctly. He was put in the role starting officially in June, but the impact of him being in the role started to become more known in the second half of July. So right. that's when the Mercury was going through the crunchy part and that's when it was like, oh, this guy's been there now for four to six weeks. This is what he's doing. Okay. Yeah, yeah I haven't been following it very closely. So it's just interesting. He had sometimes- to figure out some shipping things, but had to refigure yeah. out some shipping things, but- yeah, it's just interesting that sometimes um well look look at this right here. Like if he started on June what 17th. Look at like that's right when Mercury was stationing um retrograde in Cancer. So mm, I don't know, it's just interesting because mm-hmm. sometimes these mundane things happen and we can see difficult transits happening, like some of the ones that we're talking about coming up in September intensifying. Um, and sometimes you see that stuff in the news right away, but other times you don't fully see it or you don't realize what ha- what's happening unless you're in a specific position where you happen to be able to observe it. And sometimes it doesn't become really like public news until sometime later. Mm. Yeah. All right. Sorry. So back to after that little digression. Mars retrograde. Mars retrograde. Um, do we have anything else we really need to say about that or hasn't been articulated about Mars? stationing retrograde, intensifying itself in late Aries and squaring Saturn. I guess it's squaring Saturn, but also squaring Pluto and everything else. Yeah. Well, one thing I would say is that the difficulty with Mars retrogrades that's not really present with most of the other retrogrades is that with Mars, we're playing with fire. We're figuring out where uh, what fights are worth having right we're figuring out like what um yeah when is force useful um you know and there's a different uh, although there is a risk with for example a venus retrograde and picking your friends wisely um with mars we're picking fights and so the confusing loop de loop of motion that mars does uh, through the retrograde portion uh, of its cycle is much is higher stakes Right, because as I as I've said in previous months, you know we're not storing frosting; we're sh- we're storing gasoline. And although your frosting might go bad if you store it, you know, uh, in an open container in the garage, bugs might get into it. That's um, much lower stakes still than if you're storing gasoline um, next to the smoking section, right? And so, because of that, um, you know, Mars is much more volatile um, and inherently dynamic and violent. And so we've already been seeing um, Mars-Saturn things happening with states on fire and other states devastated by windstorms, and we've got hurricanes on the way. Um, there is a um, there's a much more destructive quality um, to the to the malefics, which is why we call them the malefics, which is not necessarily morally wrong, right? It's not always. It's certainly there is a time to fight, and there are things worth fighting over. Um, but we have to pick those very carefully because most of the time, uh, starting a fight is wrong to some degree and has negative consequences. And so Mars, Mars's retrograde puts a giant question mark around all of that, and internally causes a lot of 
um, retrogrades, especially uh, retrogrades, always bring back and forth, um, and that those strong swings of back and forth be like uh, when it's uh, when those back and forth are up towards or away from conflict are much more consequential. Yeah, definitely. And that reminds me, one of the keywords that you used there reminds me of we had a really literal, um, not very positive manifestation of one of the major configurations with Mars this month, which was the explosion that happened in Beirut uh, on August 4th, which was right when Mars was completing its first square with Jupiter from 19 Aries to 19 degrees of Capricorn. Um, so we have the exact time for that. It was August fourth at six oh seven p.m. in Beirut, Lebanon, and uh, look at this. Like Mars was at nineteen degrees and forty-seven minutes of Aries, and it just barely completed the square with Jupiter at nineteen degrees and forty-three minutes of Capricorn. So, and what ended up happening was, what was the what was the setup again, Kelly? I think the roof of the warehouse that the ammonium nitrate was in caught fire, which then led to a series of small uh, explosions or you know things combusting, which then led to the larger explosion. Right. There was and like no, this that abandoned. Was... Go ahead. What were you saying, Austin? That was one day after the full moon. That was almost exactly T squared Uranus too. To Uranus, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and so it was like there was this, there was all this explosive, like ammonium nitrate that had been taken from an abandoned ship that was just like sitting there for six years, and then it caught fire and exploded for some reason. And then there was at least 181 deaths. There were 6,000 people injured, and over 300,000 people left homeless by this huge explosion that just ripped through the city. Um, they actually said that. It was detected by the U.S. Geological Survey as a seismic event of magnitude 3.3, equivalent to a 4.5 local magnitude earthquake, and it's now considered one of the most powerful non-nuclear explosions in history um, at this exact Mars-Jupiter square. So that's a very literal manifestation of, of that square. Yeah, and the, I mean, it's a very little, literal kind of visual expression of the destruction that can happen with some of these more um, malefic or inflammatory aspects, I guess. Yeah, like a Mars as an explosion um, and Jupiter just magnifying it and making it even bigger than it, it should be otherwise, or a fire that becomes bigger, like Mary Grace mentions in the chat. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, there were some weird things that happened with that. There was like a video on social media of like a bride who was getting wedding photos taken, and then the explosion happens, and that was really sad. There was also like a baby who was being born right at the same time. So this chart that I was sharing basically ends up then also being the birth chart of the baby. The baby's name was actually George, um, so he would also end up having this Aquarius rising, and that that to me was actually kind of interesting in terms of a, a statement that Rhetorius makes about. The 12th house indicating the events that happened just prior to birth. Um, and you would have that Mars Jupiter square there sort of focalized in the 12th house. Um, so it's sort of, I understand that sort of principle of delineation a little bit better now as a result. Um, I did want to mention, and we did want to mention that um, there's some like recovery and there's some like support efforts for the people that were impacted by that in Lebanon. So 
It seems like the Lebanese Red Cross is one of the main groups that you can donate to if you wanted to uh, by going to supportlrc.app, A-P-P. And then Kelly, I think you had some other another page. Yeah, there's a great Guardian.com article, which I think we'll just link in the show notes below if people are looking for aid organizations uh, that are supporting the recovery reliefs in Lebanon. Yeah, or just Google Beirut explosion, how you can help victims in Lebanon, and that Guardian article should come up first. Um, All right, so back to the forecast. Um, One of the things that's happening pretty much simultaneously just a few days later after Mars stations retrograde is Jupiter actually stations direct in Capricorn and then thus commences its final run through the rest of Capricorn, which it will complete eventually in December before moving into Aquarius. So that's the other side of what's happening this month is we don't just have Mars stationing retrograde in Aries, but we also get some major planetary stations happening in Capricorn at the same time, first with Jupiter and then later with Saturn. How do you guys feel about that? Either feelings? I feel like they're certainly worth mentioning. I think they're significantly less important than Mars's retrograde station. And they're also rare. Are there one of the reasons Mars's retrogrades are often such a pain in the ass is in terms of um, a thing which happens less often, being more disruptive to what we experience as normal. Um, both Jupiter and Saturn station twice as often as Mars. Mars actually stations um, retrograde and direct um, less often than any other planet. Um, and so it, those are certainly mm-hmm. significant, but um, there is a, a degree of magnitude that I think is worth noticing with Mars. It's They're rarer. They're every other year rather than every year. Sure. Yeah, certainly Mars is playing the... Um outweighed um, side of the equation this month in terms of the intensity and importance of its station right there in the middle of September and just the entire chapter that it's going to open up between now and mid-November. I do think the Jupiter station, especially for people with day charts, and if you have planets in Capricorn close to that degree, could be a helpful and sort of much-needed respite or, or sort of balancing of some positive things that are helping to counterbalance everything else that's been going on in Capricorn and counterbalance um, some of the intensity and the fieriness of Mars uh, in Aries. So at least some people, especially if you have planets, let's say, close to 17 degrees of cardinal signs, that could be a somewhat positive transit that's that's helping out a little bit. The one, I guess, larger symbolic shift with Jupiter and Saturn stationing direct is that it does indicate that it's like the start of the last chapter in Capricorn for both of those planets. So even though we're still a few months away from them leaving Capricorn, we've got to get them back to forward movement before they can actually head head out of Capricorn. So um, certainly happy for Jupiter to station direct and get moving so that it can leave the sign of its fall. And uh, I think we're all happy to see the back of Saturn in Capricorn. So we've still got a few months before they're out of Capricorn, but this is sort of the start of the final push to get them into Aquarius. Yeah, and the final commencement, especially for people that are having things like their Saturn returns in Capricorn um, this month is like the final um, 
opening of the last chapter of that because it's been. Have you guys seen how striking it's been seeing some of those people that are having like their Saturn returns in Capricorn now that it has fully retrograded back into that sign? Some of those themes really coming back and either um, this push to to finish that up and to finish the last steps of their Saturn return, or in some instances just a review of. Some of those significations in that area of their life. Like I was looking at somebody's chart that had it in their seventh house, and they had experienced some really difficult relationship stuff earlier in their Saturn return. Uh, but now it seems like they've started one new major relationship with Saturn retrograding back into that sign over the past few months. And they seem to be doing much better in this one or to have moved into a new stage of their life with relationships that's much more distinct compared to earlier. Have you guys noticed that with like client charts? Uh, certainly, it's it's more of the same. Um, that's great that um, the person you're talking about is having what seems like a very positive development. I, I think that's should not be assumed to be the case with people who are having their Saturn return. This last bit is rough with Mars there. Um, but back to Jupiter, what I would say is Jupiter Jupiter can't help much, but it can try. And that the Jupiter direct, it's, you know, it's like, okay, it's the way forward and it's not going to fix everything. And it's maybe, you know, it's not much, but it's a, it's a way to go. You know, it's better than not having that. Um, you know, Jupiter's really outgunned here and not in a position to have control over much, but it, it's something, you know, it's, it's a, well, we can at least do this. Right. Uh, yeah, all right. So that's Jupiter stationing direct on September 12th. Uh, just a few days after that, Venus squares Uranus on September 17th. It's one of the like more quasi exciting aspects of this month is a Venus Uranus square from 10 degrees of Leo to 10 degrees of uh, Taurus. Are you guys excited about excited about the Kelly? You're excited about that? Um, I don't know if I'm excited. I'm always curious because, you know, I remind myself that while Uranus is in Taurus, Venus is its ruling planet. So it does add a little bit more juice or charge to the Venus-Uranus aspects. It can be, you know, there can be a freshness or a sense of let's jumpstart something that's quite stagnant, I think, with this Venus-Uranus aspect. You might think about uh, relationships being stimulated or activated, you know, romantic life, dating life, if we think about typical Venus things. Um, but of course, there is some like adjustment or that idea of like the surprise or the unexpected development, partly because it's a square angle and partly because we are dealing with Uranus as well. Uh, so I'm curious about it, partly to see, you know, what it means for around the 15th um, or 16th of September, depending on where you are. But I'm also curious about some of the the press or the news stories then that might help reveal a little more about the longer Uranus and Taurus trend. Mm, right. Yeah, definitely. And it's one of the only things that's happening in fixed signs. Like fixed signs kind of have a break during this period aside from that that quick square and whatever is going on with Uranus if anybody has anything at 10 degrees of fixed signs. Um but I saw somebody on Twitter recently saying like they'll fix the fixed sign people will get theirs uh before too long. They've got a temporary break right now while all of the cardinal signs are getting hit, but then next year we have like Saturn and eventually Jupiter also moving into Aquarius and a pretty sizable shift uh, into much greater focus on those signs. 
Austin, did you have any thoughts on that aspect? Uh, um, no, not too much. I mean, you know, uh, uh, with Venus Uranus contacts, it's usually, um, it's usually good to shake it up. You know, whatever you're doing, um, whatever, wherever you're, whatever you're doing for fun or pleasure, um, Venus, um, you know, whatever the relational patterns are, um, the way to the best way to work with a with a, a potentially harsh Uranus contact like that is just to shake it up, do something different. Don't don't go, uh, uh, don't go back to the same old thing. Do something else for a couple days. Um, it can be positive if you're intentionally injecting, you know, innovation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you if you're intentionally, let's just say, doing the work of avoiding stagnation. Um, if you try to like do exactly the same thing, um, that disruption is more likely to be done to you than by you. Good advice. All right, so let's move forward uh, to September 17th, where we get our second lunation of the month. This one is a new moon that's taking place at 24, maybe barely 25 degrees of Virgo. Uh, so new moon in Virgo on September 17th. Um, interestingly, Mercury is pretty much exactly, Mercury is not only ruling this lunation because it's taking place in Virgo, but Mercury is almost exactly squaring Jupiter at the same time from 1726 Libra to 1726 Capricorn. So I thought that was kind of interesting because um, it's kind of a positive aspect having Mercury squaring Jupiter at the same time, but then after this point, after September 17th, we get out of that sort of protective period of Mercury applying to Jupiter, and then it's just careening towards the the more difficult aspects with uh, Pluto and Saturn and Mars for the rest of the month. Yeah, so you know, with Mercury, right? We're we're looking at what can, especially with Jupiter, Mercury configured to a benefic. Um, and with the lunation itself being um, <clears throat> uh, being uh, Mercury rolled, uh, we really, you know, it, it's like okay, what can be fixed? What can be improved? What can be protected? Because um, that's you know, it's the other side of the, of what is benefic, right? There's to make things better, but then there is also to shield things against potential harm. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I did see that Mercury-Jupiter aspect when I was looking at that new moon and I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if there's a sense of just before Mercury goes into, you know, the dark valley, uh, if there's a, a sense of like, this is where we're getting ultimately something about looking forward or some sort of boost or lift that then pushes you, maybe can act as a motivating or an inspiring factor to deal with, you know, the challenges just around the corner. Yeah, one of the cool things about the and important things about the lunations this month is that because they're taking place in the mutable signs, um, that means that we basically are at the halfway point between eclipses. So because the nodes have moved into Sagittarius and Gemini and will be taking place there back and forth for the next couple of years, um, when we start getting uh, other lunations and mutable signs, it's, it means we're at the midpoint. And sometimes something that started or initiated during the last set of eclipses, roughly two or three months ago, um, we'll see a new development in that and a new progression of that at this point with the lunations in Virgo and, and Pisces. Yeah, that's a really good point. 
All right. And then, yeah, sure. I mean, because it's so late, the lunation. So then we'll get the sun moving into Libra uh, for the equinox just a few days later. Yeah. So is that our next major thing? Is just um, the sun ingressing into Libra a few days later on September twenty second. Mm-hmm. Equinox mm-hmm. time. So we enter finally. We get to the fourth quarter of twenty twenty. Fourth quarter. Yes. The exciting wow, that's weird finale. To say. Yeah. So this is the episode, the series finale of the show called Twenty Twenty. <laughs> And we've it's had a, some it's ups a four and part, It's a four-part miniseries that everyone hated. <laughs> everyone, yeah. The last season or two was a little rough. I'm hoping it ends on a high note. I mean, it really, it kind of will. Looking that forward part. to that Jupiter-Saturn conjunction is something to look forward to. I, I don't think. Um, I mean, I don't think ends on a high note. Uh, I think it will ends on a everything. Uh, I think it ends on a all is not lost note. Yeah. I like that. That seems appropriate. Okay. Um, so Sun moves into Libra on September 22nd. We begin the fourth quarter of the year. Uh, Mercury moves into its kind of challenging period where Mercury squares Saturn on September 23rd. It opposes Mars on September 24th. Um, it goes through this brief like period where it's actually enclosed by the rays of the malefics through the square in opposition of Mars and Saturn. And another thing that I noticed is that Mercury actually enters its shadow period at precisely the same exact period, starting on September 23rd, once it hits 25 Libra, because this is actually the degree it will retrograde uh, back to eventually and station direct on what is that on, on election day, basically, right? Like the day after or something, November 3rd or 4th. Okay. Yeah. Let me let me show that. So if we think some of the like Mercury hijinks that are happening with the country now with with uh the US Mercury getting hit are kind of crazy. Wait until Mercury goes retrograde uh for three weeks, basically, leading up to election day in the US, and then stations direct. On election day, his history history question. You guys know the last time that Mercury stationed direct on election day? I do. I do. It's two thousand November two thousand. Exactly twenty twenty years ago. One Mercury period. Mercury periods are twenty years, which means that we've got a, a bit of a repetition of that. Which is always weird because it was Mercury stationing direct on election day, which you would think would be like the alleviation of some Mercury retrograde issues, but instead it was just. Uh, at least twenty years ago, unleashed this whole can of worms in terms of the um, election being um, undecided, basically, and then all of these arguments about hanging chads and like voting and the Supreme Court having to break the deadlock and everything else. I mean, I, I think we'll probably do something very similar. Yeah, that's what I'm expecting is like a delayed result. And when you think about it, Mercury ends its retrograde, but it takes quite some time to get back up to a level of speed or pace. The end of the retrograde is not now I'm going 100Ks an hour again. The end of the retrograde is I've just turned and I'm not facing backwards, but now I'm facing forward, but I'm still not really going anywhere. And it's going to take Mercury a few days to actually even get off the station degree. So some kind of delayed or contested result in the election, it seems like a no-brainer to be expecting yeah. that um, with Well, this. and it's stationed um, exactly square Saturn. <laughs> 
Yeah. So when you get deeper into that chart, it doesn't get better for Mercury. It's just like, oh yeah, this is going to yeah, be. So, so here's the direct station at 25 Libra on November 3rd-ish, November 3rd, November 4th. And then, it, so if we take it back to when is the first time that Mercury crosses that degree that it will later station direct at, we come it's to September 23. Yeah. Lovely chart around September 23, where Mercury at 25 Libra is squaring Saturn at 25 Capricorn. And then shortly after that, starts opposing Mars at 26 Aries. So we really get the opening of some can of worms there in the pre-retrograde shadow period buildup, the buildup to the Mercury retrograde that leads us into electional day begins at this point around September 23rd. Yeah. Actually, as you're putting those charts, I'm like, oh my God, yeah. Mercury squares Saturn for the first time, and we're not done with that until early November. So it is going to be uh, a solid six weeks of Mercury squares. Mercury kind of getting that vibe as an undertone from Saturn. Yeah. So uh, Mercury tries to make it through the gauntlet in a couple of days there, September 23rd, 24th, especially tough, um, opposing Mars on the 24th, then eventually gets out of there for a little bit and moves into Scorpio by September 27th. Uh, Mercury makes it into that sign, but then not super long after that, it's going to start slowing down and getting ready to station retrograde the following month. So just a couple of points about the Mercury, Saturn, Mercury, Mars in terms of what individuals might experience with that. Um, that can be a very heavy mind, um, kind of a weighty decision. It can be really mulling things over. There can be a melancholy or even an anxious quality that people could be experiencing it might be specific to an event or a circumstance that comes up at that time. It might be just this general malaise. Um, you know, with Mercury in such difficult condition, um, you might find you've got to make a tough but necessary choice or, or sort of feel like you're choosing between two options that you don't love, but you've got to make a decision about something. So that's really like September 23, 24. Um, and I, the reason I just wanted to mention it was just for everyone to take care of their of their mental health and their mindset around then. Um, as best you can. Yeah, yeah, with it being opposed retrograde Mars as well as square Saturn, um, it's it's pretty rough, right? Because the Saturn is the weighty and the melancholy, and then the Mars is maybe we should freak out. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that that's um, about as rough a condition as Mercury can be in. <laughs> um it's yeah. not great for communications i'm sure the um the the national conversation here in the states as well as a variety of other conversations in different parts of the world will not be in an ideal place it's not a great time to have a difficult talk yeah no well, if you get the choice about when to have the difficult talk Right. If you might um, have to respond because you're being screamed at, but um, if you have the choice whether to initiate a, you know, a conversation that really requires a lot of nuance, um, choose not to under those circumstances. And uh, particularly, like even though Mercury has just cleared the square with Saturn, on the 25th, the moon is conjunct Saturn, square Mars, square Mercury. So those, that extends those difficulties a little longer. Mm, yeah, good point. Definitely good point. And just the 
being pulled between different extremes. One of the things that a lot of the ancient traditional astrological texts always talk about is how Mercury um, just exacerbates whatever planets it is paired with. So if you, you pair it with benefics, it will take on their qualities and kind of amplify them. But if you pair it with malefics, it will kind of take on their qualities and amplify those qualities. So it's playing this this sort of amplification role for a few days here in the later part of September. And um, eventually this brings us to our final last major thing, which might be the focal point. I mean, I, I, I'm sometimes getting torn between whether the actual Mars station in the second week of September is the focal point or whether this is the focal point, which is um, on the 29th of September, Saturn stations direct at 25 degrees of Capricorn and then begins moving forward and begins its final forward movement, its final slow march basically from this point until the the last of going through the last of Capricorn before it leaves and moves into Aquarius in December. So Saturn stations direct at 25 Capricorn. There's an intensification of Saturn energy and pretty much simultaneously we get the second Mars-Saturn square. So Mars squares Saturn as it's stationing direct. And then finally the last thing that's important to mention here is that because Saturn is stationing direct at 25-20 Capricorn, um, it actually comes back within the closest it will get to a conjunction with Pluto, which is at about 22-29 Capricorn at this time. So we get the closest recurrence of basically the Saturn-Pluto conjunction, which we experienced way back in January, um, which at that time seemed to, in retrospect, we realized later, coincide with the ramping up of the outbreak of, of COVID in January and some of the first public news stories about it, like in the New York Times reporting on a mysterious new virus that was coming out of China uh, around the time of the Saturn-Pluto conjunction in January. So that's that's really intense um, cluster yeah, of I mean, like this three is, different aspects. Yeah, I mean, this is like September and October are like pretty peak economic and political crisis, as well as probably ongoing um, bonus natural disasters, mm -hmm. right? Like the the like this Mars Saturn isn't just like ah, oh, it's kind of a frustrating month, right? Mm -hmm. Like it is. But it's also literally the you know it's describing the backdrop that we're already in because we've already had a Mars Saturn um, and lots of things are on fire and blowing up um, yeah. and there's wind and rain also destroying things like you know um, I'm not trying to be uh, negative but like it's I think it's important to not undersell how just gnarly the background is here right you know we should probably have disease. Wait, um, the economic stuff, which is already there, landing in waves, um, and then of course the ongoing political crisis in the United States. Yeah, it's like a bunch of overlapping stuff, and actually, you can you can kind of almost illustrate that with the astrology because there's a bunch of overlapping mm -hmm. transits. Yeah. Um, so right. it's not just one malefic or one problem. It's three things all at once, all um, you know, all creating. Uh, malefic synergies, baleful synergies. <laughs> yeah, like uh, Kyle from archetypalexplorer.com, who's actually our sponsor this month, and I'll talk about later in the episode, sent me some graphs. So this is the Saturn-Pluto graph of showing that conjunction between Saturn and Pluto, which went exact, like I was saying, back in January. 
And then it got far away once Saturn got into Aquarius and sort of got some distance from Pluto by May and June. But then when it retrograded back, um, this point in late September and early October is like a return of the closest we'll get to that exact conjunction. And I guess really a question of, you know, since it's not an exact conjunction, but it's within three degrees of orb, how much does that conjunction really become operative and come back full force? Uh, or does it not quite as full force? Is it like the threat almost of coming back full force um, because it doesn't go exact? How do you guys feel? Well, it's getting, it's not going exact, but it's being set on fire by Mars, mm-hmm. right? We have, um, we get, we'd say Mars is translating the light between Saturn and Pluto. It's one way of putting it. I mean, to by my the way, mind, I think, yeah. Go ahead. I was I was just say, the, so, ba- yeah. baleful synergy. As the uh, as the title for uh, if I were naming the podcast this month, I think I would go with baleful synergy. <laughs> baleful synergy, okay. Yeah, because to my mind, the Mars Saturn stuff, it really we started to be an orb of that. If I think about a three degree orb when Mars is within three degrees of Saturn, that started about the fifteenth of August, and it'll take Mars until about the eleventh or so of October to get at least three degrees away from Saturn. So. Okay. The way I've conceptualized it is the entire time has that Mars-Saturn vibe. And as Austin's saying, it's just contributing this underlying explosive, dry, extreme quality that is just going to light up, you know, Saturn and Mars maybe don't have to be as close. Sorry, Saturn and Pluto don't have to be as close as we might otherwise expect because the the quality of what else is going on is is so volatile and combustible. Yeah, yeah, we've totally. got the moon carrying the energy between them four times a month. Yeah. Uh, and here's another graph with just the the first exact Mars-Saturn square that happened in August. Then we get the second one at the end of September, and then that long sort of gap before we eventually get the final Mars-Saturn square that won't happen until like January. So you put all of that together and you get 2020, and we are approximately what like three quarters of the way through this graph by the time we get there at that that uh, second square between Mars and Saturn at the end of September. Um, but because that starts the retrograde period, there's just a lot of over, overlapping stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Saturn Pluto and Saturn Pluto, this is going to be our final sort of opportunity to mention Saturn Pluto. I don't know if we have if there's any retrospective things you guys want to say. One of the things in talking to Lisa, Lisa in research, she's reading a lot of Saturn Pluto stuff and like the lead up to this. One of the themes she kept focusing on years ago when we first started talking about it, when Saturn went into to Capricorn and joined Pluto, was in the past Saturn Pluto alignments and the potential for like authoritarian governments and authoritarian tendencies among governments. And um, we keep remarking sort of privately to each other, just like how strikingly. Um, that has come up and become more prominent around the world over the course of the past few years, even more than I think anybody would have expected when it began in what December of 2017. December of 2017, yeah, yeah. So um, that idea of authoritarianism and the attempt to amass power um, and things like that amongst. The powerful is is one of the major themes, I think, of Saturn Pluto that we've seen, and one that could become more intense for some reason as we get that 
that conjunction coming close again in the in the sky over the course of the next month. Um, what are some yeah, other Pluto? I, I, I don't think I'll be ready for a retrospective until they're uh, separated by sign. I think we're still very much seeing the story play out all over the world, and we've got we've got uh, about four months to go at this point. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see any other, because we're at the end of September at this point, any other final points in terms of Saturn stationing, um, directing Capricorn conjunct, uh, Pluto and to lesser extent Jupiter or the second Mars Saturn square that's happening at the same time, or just Saturn itself stationing, directing Capricorn and beginning its final run through that sign. I think it's, I mean, more of more of the same um is is one of the themes like it just keeps the party going same you know, mood more 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 um combustible garbage into the dumpster i mm. i think that um it's it's a little confusing to watch uh for myself and a lot of people to watch the stock market right now i think september might um might be able to bring it back in line with economic data I don't know. You know, it's um, it's a weird. Um, it, it's an odd thing right now. I, I I think it's safe to say that it won't keep going up throughout. Um, you know, months and then years of mm-hmm. um, economic depression, and so it's got to come down at some point. I think that um, the, especially late September seems pretty capable of popping that balloon, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah I mean, I was going to say. Kelly? I wonder about that Mercury, Saturn, Mercury, Mars placement um, around uh, sales data, you know, quarterly reporting and things like that for businesses starting to release information that's more relevant to this year rather than, you know, early in the year, you're still releasing data from last year. So um, I wonder about that. And, And I also know historically October tends to be a very difficult month in the stock market in general. And so, yeah, I too am sort of thinking, don't believe the economic stuff that's coming out because I think that's definitely going to change September and October. Yeah, well, and also especially with like messing with things like the post office and how many um, little businesses that must affect uh, to have something like that happening, just further compounding some of the already existing issues with the economy. Um and we've all been waiting because one of the main keywords we talked about, I think, in the year ahead forecast was just ideas of contraction in terms of the economy. So certainly um, having Saturn stationed there next to Pluto, if we're going to get a contraction and if we're going to run up against a greater sense of like reality, the reality of a situation, certainly Saturn having an intensification um, is something that would be we would anticipate in terms of that being really real- realistic and being like what happens when you hit the wall and the reality of a situation suddenly becomes clear. Yeah, back to earth. Yeah. Let's come out of the clouds, pop the bubble. Yeah. All right. Um so, um something I forgot to mention last month that's relevant in terms of mundane astrology becoming and has become somewhat less relevant now in terms of the future, but uh, was Comet Neowise, and we had mentioned this months back in one of the early forecast episodes earlier this year, in like March and April. But just in terms of the coinciding with, especially the pandemic or worldwide pandemic, and this comet 
um, which was actually discovered on March 27th, which was right around that whole time frame of the Mars-Saturn-Jupiter-Pluto conjunction in Capricorn. Um, but then it eventually became the brightest comet in the northern hemisphere since Comet Hillbop, which occurred way back in 1997 and was bright enough to be seen uh, with the naked eye. Um, I think it peaked in brightness and visibility in something like July. Did you ever get to see it, Kelly? I didn't get to see it, no. Um, but I remembered the Hellbop comet from 97 that took me back to uh, being younger and, you know, getting fascinated by things in the sky. That's a beautiful picture. Yeah, a nice little picture of the comet Neowise over in San Francisco over the Golden Gate Bridge, just to show you like how like clear it actually was in terms of being able to see the tail and everything else. Beautiful. You can imagine seeing that how much the ancients would have looked at that and wondered what it meant and what it foretold, whether it was positive or negative. Because even to us modern our modern eyes that are used to seeing much more spectacular things, you know, with um, animation and technology, to see something like that in the in the natural world, it really is quite a spectacular visual. Yeah, and it's also something you can't predict, and especially ancient people couldn't predict. Mm. And even us with our modern telescopes and, and the advancements in astronomy only discovered this thing on March 27th. And then it, it was like just a few months before it became fully visible to the naked eye. So you get a real sense of how a comet from a visible astronomical and astrological standpoint, especially in conceptualizing as a type of divination where you're looking at things that are visible from the standpoint of the observer and what that means symbolically. Um, seeing something like that happen that's out of the ordinary or that's like not a natural occurrence in terms of the periodic cycles of the planets, which are predictable and everything else, this is something that sort of comes out of nowhere that indicates that something weird and something unique is happening this year during this point in time. Something exceptional, something unusual. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So some people are saying that that should be classified as like a great comet, like other great comets that are, are periodic and visible. There's some argument about that, but I think it's it was an interesting coinciding in terms of the uniqueness that we've all felt and sort of lived through an experience of this year and there being this um, new astronomical event that coincided with it. Totally. We were just talking about the comet, Austin. Hmm. Yeah. Did it's, you have any th um, thoughts about it? Um, you know, I mean, comets in almost all omen traditions are heralds of disaster. Seems right on time. Yeah, they are not usually um, interpreted as particularly positive things, and certainly the comet coinciding with the most intense part of the pandemic in some places and when like thousands of people are dying is sort of notable and, and memorable in and of itself. Yeah, again, I think it's right on time. I, it seems to um, be a nice confirmation of text that might at first glance seem uh, superstitious to a modern person. Yeah, for sure. All right. Um, any last things we should mention before we move on from the forecast for September? Are we good? I think we, we might be good, right? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a pretty good overview. A little an overview with some anatomy. Okay, brilliant. All right. Well, then let's move on to. I want to talk a little bit. We're going to talk in transition into some miscellaneous discussion topics. 
Um, I also want to talk a little bit first about um, our sponsor this month, which is a website I've mentioned a few times because I've been using graphics from them all year. But the website is called archetypalexplorer.com. And uh, Kyle over at archetypalexplorer.com, we actually, he launched this website several years ago, and I've been talking about it since then, and I've been using it off and on since then. But he actually did a redesign over the course of the past year or so, and the website is really amazing at this point because um, I thought he was just like photoshopping some of these graphics, like the Saturn Pluto conjunction graphic that I was showing earlier, or the um, Mars Saturn conjunction or square graphic that I was showing. But this is actually something that you can generate um, either natal transit graphs or you can you can um, generate mundane transit graphs using this this website, which is crazy. So let me just read the little promo thing that I put together. So it says Archetypal Explorer is an online astrology program for natal and mundane astrology. It features a suite of visual and interactive tools for studying astrological transit. The program was built for the modern tech-savvy astrology enthusiast and aims to provide all the necessary resources in one place. The delineations, it actually gives you delineations for natal transits come from Richard Tarnas's Cosmos and Psyche through a partnership he worked out with Tarnas. Um, it helps astrologers to engage in a rich and rewarding astrological practice. It is a membership-based astrology program that you access through your browser or through your mobile phone, and you can sign up for either monthly or annual memberships. And it actually has a seven-day free trial period that you can try in order to get started and see if you like it. So you can find that at archetypalexplorer.com. I'd really recommend actually going to the website because once you go there, you can pull up a page like this where it shows what your current transits are that you're actually experiencing right now in your life. And then it'll provide not just the transit graph that shows you when it goes exact and what periods it's going to be most intense or less intense for, but it'll also give you these lovely delineations just below. So isn't that cool? So you can set it for different time periods, different planets. You can tell it what aspects you want it to generate. You can also do the same thing for mundane transits. So here's one showing like a three month, a few month period from June through November. So it shows the Jupiter-Pluto conjunction, it shows the Saturn-Pluto conjunction, and it shows other things like Jupiter trine Uranus and so on and so forth. Finally, it's also got an animate chart feature, which I love, which means you don't have to just have like solar fire to animate a chart, but you can also use this program to look at world transits like we do on this podcast every month. Ooh, I so like that. So pretty, pretty cool stuff. Have you guys used this before? I have not, no. but it seems amazing. Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. And I was talking with Kyle about integrating a thing so that you can export uh, high quality images from the transit graphs, which might be useful either for like sending them to clients or for using them on a YouTube channel or something like that. Super cool. Cool. All right. Well, everybody, check out archetypalexplorer.com for that. And thanks to Kyle for sending us the graphs pretty much all year because that's been super helpful as we've been trying to describe some of these outer planet transits. So I'm happy to have that website as a, as a tool to use. All right. So let's move into other 
discussion topics, other miscellaneous discussion topics. We have the um, we have the really important topics, and then we have the slightly less important topics. The really important topics are uh, Kitten Watch 2020, and then the lesser topics mm-hmm. are the fate of the United States in the U.S. presidential election. <laughs> Which one would you guys like to start with first? How about the? Did you mention the ISAR conference? Which I did not. Which I mentioned last week, last, last month too. Yeah, I'm like next <laughs> on the agenda is uh, is ISA. <laughs> we left out so much stuff last month because there's so much to talk about each month. It's hard to remember it all. So last month, the International Society for Astrological Research announced that, um, of course, sadly due to the pandemic, they could not hold their much anticipated conference in Denver in September of 2020 like they planned to. So instead, they broke it up, and what happened is they moved so that in September, they're going this September in the next few weeks, in just a few weeks, um, they're going to host a two-day online astrological conference uh, using a webinar format like we use to record our monthly forecasts. Uh, so two-day online conference this year, and then sometime next year, they're in the process of negotiating. Uh, trying to do an in-person conference and having the same or a similar in-person conference sometime next year, hopefully once the pandemic um, winds down a little bit. So um, you can find out more information about that at esar2020.org. And what's happening is that in this two-day conference, the first day is going to be a series of short 20-minute talks that all sort of focus on the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction that's coming up here at the end of the year in December. So that's going to feature astrologers like Stephen Forrest, Michael Luton, Georgia Stathis, and Wendy Stacy. Um, Lisa Scheim and I are actually also going to be giving a talk that day. And our topic, at first I couldn't think of a topic to talk about and I was going to decline, but then I actually came up with a really good topic, which is electing, picking an auspicious electional chart for the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction and trying to take that conjunction into account and use it as the focal point in an electional chart in December, because we actually had picked out some elections to do just that. So in this 20-minute talk, we're going to walk through our process for for doing that. Um, Day two of the ESAR conference is a presidential panel where they're going to be discussing the US presidential election. So that's pretty much the conference, and you can find out more information about the talks uh, or sign up to register at ESAR2020.org. And we are luckily we are off the hook, so we don't have to do like a huge webinar uh, workshop in September. Are you guys excited about that? I'm, I'm excited so excited not about have, not doing that. Yeah, an insane <laughs> amount of online teaching to do in the middle of the September madness. Yeah. Oh, and somebody in the chat asked what the dates are. It's September 12th and 13th. Thank you for asking that. I appreciate it. Yeah, so no workshop. Sadly, hopefully next year, a year from now, sometime next summer or fall, we'll be able to still meet up in Denver for an in-person conference. But we'll we'll see what happens. See how things unfold. Okay. So much. Yeah. Uh, next discussion topic, important topic or less important topic? Do we end on a high note or do we end on a other note? We end on a high note. Okay. We, end on a, we end on an adorable note. Right, adorable so we'll note. save we'll save the adorable most September. Discussion. Yeah. Okay. So I hope you. I hope there are photographs that are going to be shared when we get to this. I do have some photographs. Let's not. You do. We're building okay. it up. We're building okay. it up a lot. We've got to go into other other territory first. <laughs> we have to go through okay. our own minefield. 
other news that's been going on. We've been catching up pretty well. We mentioned the Beirut explosion. We mentioned um, Comet Neowise. We mentioned the post office. Um, obviously, we're heading into we've headed into officially political season in the United States, and it's hard not to talk about that. One of the major things that happened was um, Senator Kamala Harris was picked as Joe Biden's running mate for the vice presidency. And this is important and somewhat notable because, from an astrological standpoint, partially because uh, Kamala Harris was born in California, which is an open state. So we actually have her birth time, and therefore we know um, Kamala's first, her entire birth chart. So, what that means is that the final piece is in place so that astrologers could, hypothetically, if they were so inclined, start looking at finally the US presidential election and, and sort of know. As much data as we're going to know about that at this point, where we have birth times for Trump, we have a birth time for Biden, and we have a birth time for Kamala Harris. The only person we don't have a birth time for is Pence. Uh, unfortunately, we're still holding out on that. I still keep holding out hope that it'll be like the 2012 election where Obama like printed his birth certificate on mugs and sold that as merchandise. I, I pray for a return to those days at some point. So, um, Kamala Harris's chart for those that don't have the data or would like the data, here is the chart for those watching the video version. She was born on October 20th, 1964, starting uh, at 9.28 p.m. in Oakland, California, which according to Solar Fire gives her 24 Gemini rising. The ruler of the ascendant is Mercury in Scorpio at one degrees of Scorpio in the sixth house, which is forming a trine to the midheaven at two degrees of Pisces. Uh, what other placements she has? She has a night chart. Um, interestingly, one of the things I find really interesting is she has a night chart, and she was born almost precisely at an exact full moon, where the moon is at 27 degrees of Aries, opposite to the sun at 27 degrees of Libra. And I thought that that was really interesting because um, <clears throat> there's one other person that has a full full moon chart. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. His name is Donald Trump, who has his sun at 22 degrees of Gemini versus his moon at 21 degrees of Sagittarius. So we've got a battle between two full moon um, political candidates, basically, in this election, which is kind of an interesting thing to to compare. Um, other notable points about this chart that you guys have seen is just in terms of the basic setup and, and placements. Well, one thing that I just noticed right now mm. is that both uh, uh, Kamala and Trump both have the nodes in the same signs um, and very prominent in both cases. Uh, Trump yes. has them on the sun and the moon, and she has them on the ascendant and descendant. Yeah, and guess what nodes just moved into the same pair of, of signs? Yeah, guess, or, guess, or, guess, yeah. Who, guess which two people are having nodal returns. Yeah. Right. So the nodes recently, as we've talked about a lot in the forecast over the past few months, just moved into Gemini and Sagittarius. So we're, we just started getting a shift of eclipses a couple of months ago also into that axis of Gemini and Sagittarius, and that's going to ramp up especially later this year, I believe in December, when we get eclipses in Sagittarius and Gemini in Nove again, November, like November I think we start. We get our yeah. first full set of eclipses within a month uh, on that axis within a month of the election. Yeah. Oh, damn. Funny damn. how things work out. Okay. Funny that. Well, that's really important. Let me animate the chart just to 
Not that I'm skeptical, but to show how that actually works, because that's very striking if that's true. I mean, and it's you have this. This, yeah, it's definitely true. Um, <laughs> not, not that I'm skeptical. Uh, I love it. So there that's... it is. So there it is. A full moon in Gemini at nine degrees of Gemini, and that's a lunar eclipse on November thirtieth. And then what? It's like the next, the next one's a solar eclipse in Sagittarius at twenty three Sag on December fourteenth, ish. It yep. Looks like. Yeah. Yep. It's end of November and then mid December. And it's worth noting the significance of like the Sag-Jupiter axis in general uh, in that the Sibley chart has a Sag rising. Joe Biden, who has already been vice president of America and is now running for president, has a Sag rising. Um, Kamala Harris, I'm, I'm not sure exactly the pronunciation. If it's Kamala or Kamala, please definitely correct me if I'm getting it wrong. Um, she has a Gemini rising as well. And then, of course, Trump has huge things across the Gemini Sag axis. So it's a really significant axis and quite interesting that it's being hit by eclipses at this particular election cycle. Yeah. And um, when I saw, because I was holding off on looking at much of the political astrology at all, honestly, until until this VP pick, because I just wanted to wait until everything was in place um, so that we didn't have to speculate too much on like people who didn't end up being the candidate candidates but um now that it is picked and seeing both seeing Joe Biden having having Gemini or seeing Kamala Harris having Gemini rising and then Joe Biden having Sagittarius rising that's actually really interesting and and notable in terms of the eclipses because that ended up being one of the um indicators in for Obama first for his two elections was when he was elected in 2008 the eclipses had just shifted into his rising sign in his seventh house. And then when he was reelected in 2012, the eclipses shifted into his 10th house and his fourth house. So there was this eclipse, first house and 10th house emphasis during both elections. And then we saw a continuation of that in retrospect with Trump when he uh, when he sort of got the White House in, in 2017. When there was an eclipse, eclipses that started taking place in his rising sign. So there's this like weird, interesting continuation of that. So that's one of those little pieces of data, just in terms of do we see a continuation of that, of people getting elected to public office when eclipses start hitting their angles, or um, alternatively, with Trump having the eclipses returning back to his sun moon eclipse natal axis, if that ends up being. Um, more important to him for that reason. Well, one thing that's interesting um, that we can say is that the people who end up being so center stage during a period of history, mm. not surprisingly, have charts that are really configured to what's happening, right? Yeah. Um, and that's not and that's not necessarily positive transits, right? Because taking on uh well running at all is i think mostly not fun um right imagine what a <laughs> uh, and grueling then, and process then taking that is. taking office especially you know whoever you know anyone who who took high office in the united states right, over the last couple of years over the next probably decade or so is probably not going to Gent get to gently oversee a land of prosperity, peace, and accord. Right? It, it'll probably be an unpleasant job. That's it'll something be hard. we noticed before Inc too, with like Saturn, right? Yeah. Like with when um, right um, 
right as Trump took office, that was Saturn going into the same sign as his moon. Where I'd be like, oh, you know, if we were reading that for a person, be like, oh, it's going to be a bummer, right? It's going to be, uh, it'll be unpleasant emotionally. There's going to be a lot of weight, you know. Um, mm. You might be stressed out. You might be more stressed out than normal. Um, and that's uh, that's not that's uh, that's I'm just using the most recent president's example, but that's not uncommon at all. Um, not George at all. Bush Jr. had um, uh, so he's got the son and I think something else in cancer and. It wasn't when he got elected, but not too long after he got elected, uh, he got to be president for all of Saturn and Cancer. Yes. Right? Saturn across his sun and all that. So yeah, you see like big, slow moving, um, often malefic um, planets uh, like hitting really tender spots in charts of people who will take on high office. Yeah, mm. well, there's no shortage of that um, for these three because all of them- All of them. Speaking of yeah. all of those like transits we've been talking about this month that are all around the later degrees of the cardinal signs, especially 25 through 27, Capricorn and Aries, um, it's like we have Trump having his Venus there at 25 degrees of Cancer, uh, conjunct his Saturn at 23 Cancer. And he's, of course, is in a third house perfection year, which is the place of siblings. And Saturn is like transiting over that, and Pluto's transiting over that right now in his. Um, brother, his younger brother, I believe, passed away in the past month, which is really interesting in terms of being in a third house perfection year. Saturn's like hitting um, the ruler of his third in the twelfth, and he loses his brother. Um, so Trump has that going on with twenty-five uh, Cancer Venus. Notably, Venus is also the ruler of his tenth whole sign house, as well as his midheaven. So it's sort of relevant not just for third house matters, but also for tenth house matters. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at Biden's chart, you see that Jupiter there at twenty-five degrees of Cancer, and that's actually the ruler of his Sagittarius rising ascendant. So the ruler of his ascendant is going to get hit and is being hit by some of the same transits in terms of Saturn um, opposing it. From 25 Capricorn and Mars squaring it from 27 some odd Aries. And then finally, Kamala Harris um, has the Sun Moon axis. Her moon is at 27 degrees of Aries and her sun is at 27 degrees of Libra, which is right where Mars is going to station retrograde uh, here very soon in late September. So yeah, all of them have like pretty heavy transits going on. Um, I have a funny anecdote about Kamala Harris actually because uh, Lisa Scheim, my partner Lisa, noticed way back in like late 2018 there was this period where Lisa discovered that we had a birth time for Kamala Harris, and she just sort of like ran the zodiac releasing periods one day, and then there was this period in 2018 where she would not stop talking about how. Notable and eminent, it seemed like Kamala Harris's chart became during the 2020 election. And um, almost to, sort of jokingly, but she was just kept going on and on about this. And I think even like uh, we may have had to institute a no prognosticating in the shower rule at one point when she was like making predictions about the presidential election based on like zodiac releasing periods. And I don't want to go into all of the details. She did eventually issue a prediction at one point, or not a prediction, but a little tweet, because both of us were trying to stay out of politics. So there was like much deliberation about whether to say anything at all. But in January of 2019, she issued a tweet 
outlining a little bit of what she had noticed about Kamala's chart becoming more prominent in 2020. And the main thing that Lisa was noticing was that she's been in this 30-year buildup period that eventually culminates when she moves into a 12-year peak period using Zodiac releasing from the Lot of Spirit uh, starting in December of 2020, which is in that weird sort of in-between period just before the inauguration takes place in January. So it's going to become one of those questions in terms of Zodiac releasing where does the peak period starting at that time begin because it indicates somebody getting into office and reaching the highest political appointment during their lifetime, or does it indicate that she's becoming more prominent, but perhaps even if she doesn't win this election, it sets her up to want to run again, let's say for the presidency in 2024. Uh, it, could, it could go either way. So you'd have to take in a lot of other factors into account in order to answer that question. Um, Kelly, I, I think you said you'd seen some interesting stuff in her chart in terms of secondary progressions. Yeah, there was, um, I guess before the official announcement came, there was some sort of scuttlebutt out on the internet that um, Kamala Harris might be named. It was back in early August. It was like, oh, somebody's seen something. It was like uh, sort of a purported false announcement. And I thought, oh, I wonder if we've got her charts. Probably the same thing Lisa did. So I just pulled the progressions just to see if there was anything notable. At that time, uh, she had, you know, withdrawn from running for president and wasn't, you know, I didn't know what was going on basically. And there were a couple of things that were significant. And, you know, similarly, it's not as though you could say off this, oh, you know, her team will definitely win, but it certainly increases that uh, visibility profile. So her progressed moon phase, she is in the first quarter moon phase by progression. So looking at the sun and the moon in the progress chart. And in some of the research I've done, when we progress into that first quarter phase, the moon is now at least half full and getting bigger. And it usually indicates people entering about an eight-year period of incredibly dynamic progress that is usually correlated with an increase in fortune or success, if you like. And so when I've looked at um, sports stars or even people in, in business or private enterprise, they seem to go into a very successful period when they come into this part of their progress moon cycle. So that was... Um, one thing that was significant. And then her progressed son is also uh, moving over her natal part of fortune, which is not something, of course, that everybody will experience, uh, but it can certainly indicate a level of, you know, with fortune or even with the moon, it's the idea of sometimes being in the right place at the right time or something going your way um, that you personally might consider being favorable. Um, so not saying, you know, that everybody would think what's happening for her is favorable, but from her perspective, from the inside of the chart looking out, um, if she has these, you know, high political aspirations, then um, this would be a time you'd certainly, you know, if this was a client, you'd certainly be encouraging the client to to reach for, um, you know, something more if that's the case. So the other significant shift, which interestingly might time out a little bit with some of the ZR stuff is that. In early 2019, February 2019, her progressed midheaven sign changed from Aries, where it had been since the early 90s, and into Taurus, where it will now be for the next sort of 20, 25 years. So she's moved out of a period in her life where her career is influenced by Aries and Mars and into a career or a period in her professional life where the Taurus-Venus vibe is going to hold more sway. So just a few changes there in tone and focus, but also a sense of elevation 
Um, and then, you know, as, as we all know, is this just the elevation that comes from running for office or does this indicate actually winning high office? So we do need to explore more because of course she's not running alone. Yeah. So there's a lot of different charts you can take into account. There's the birth charts. There's also what's just happening right now is the nomination charts where sometimes either when a candidate is nominated at the convention or when they accept the nomination, um, Patrick and I, Patrick Watson and I try to document like previous elections and which charts were working better for that. There's also the um, inauguration chart. There's also comparison with like the US chart and like all sorts of things that we need to get into if one wants to look at this question really seriously. Um, with the Zodiac releasing periods, uh, I meant to show Lisa's tweet just because she had outlined it back then in oh, January yeah, that's of great. 2019. It just says, I looked at Kamala Harris's chart slash career history and she's definitely rising somehow. Her Zodiac releasing will be excellent soon. At the end of 2020, peak periods on level one, two, and three. Her whole preparatory level one period since 1991 has been a steady climb upwards, matches timing perfectly, in what should have been less prominent slash more challenging period compared to 2021 plus. It is, is she's in a completion period now on level two, switches to a peak period on level two in July for a year, then a level one peak starts December 25th, 2020. So somehow more prominence and more positive coming up, looking forward to seeing how that plays out. And the entire um, basis of that, or a large part of the basis of that was just the fact that uh, she's been in this very long 30-year Aquarius period for those that know Zodiac releasing. And what's interesting about that is Aquarius in her chart is actually the sign that contains Saturn mm. in a night chart. So it's actually yeah, one of the most right. So it's actually one of the most subjectively difficult periods. It's compounded by the fact that it's also opposite to Mars, which is in Leo in a night chart, although there's a little bit of alleviation coming from Jupiter in a night chart in the 12th in Taurus. Um, but what happens is that in December, she switches into a 12-year Pisces period. And Pisces is the fourth sign from the lot of fortune, which is in Sagittarius. So it's a peak period, it's more active and more important for 12 years. But then also, if you look at the sign opposite to that, you find Venus in a night chart. So it's also a more subjectively positive period for some reason, and it's moving out of the most subjectively difficult period, which was the 30-year buildup period that started in 1991 and ends in December of 2020. So that's some of the background. That's about as far as I've gotten in terms of looking at this. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do an episode on it because I made a vow a while ago, which I stupidly broke to stay out of political astrology in 2016, and I shut down the political astrology blog that Patrick Watson and I used to run until we ended it after the 2012 election because I could see that politics was getting more vitriolic and just more negative and more intense, and I didn't really want to be involved in that because I quite enjoy doing astrology just on its own for its own sake and don't need to be involved in stuff like that. But maybe I'll do like a casual astrology podcast or something like that to talk about some of the candidates' charts here uh, for patrons at some point in the future. Um, any final thoughts on that topic? It's hard to say final thoughts. It's still an ongoing situation, isn't it? It's still a developing situation, as they say in the news. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll check back in over the course of the next few months as there may or may not be some interesting events occurring between now and election day. The one tiny little may. thing. There may. Um, yeah. I won't bore everyone with detailed looks at, you know, 
Biden's progressions and Trump's. But the one thing that stood out to me very briefly on Trump's chart with his progressions were that his progress moon is going to make a square to his natal Uranus through the month of October. So basically the whole month of October. And that mm, usually October indicates- surprise. The October surprise. Yeah, a moon Uranus aspect, when the progress moon aspects Uranus by hard angle, will typically create emotional volatility, an increase in fluctuations or erratic behavior and choices. So mm. um, if you're not already stable, that gets more. And if you are stable, you know, that kicks in. So I think to your points earlier, Austin, definitely more ahead with, you know, September and October as like an ongoing vibe. All right. Well, now that we have the unimportant news out of the way, let's talk about more important matters. Uh, yeah. Austin, I hear that you Austin, have Austin. You have show you have and tell. A, you have a new feline addition to your family. I've heard. We do. We do. Um, so, and, yeah, and we, the importance we, of this we, for for astrologers is that you have a birth chart with a birth time for this new addition to your family. Oh no! This is this this uh, this momentous event for everyone is packed with good astrology. So, okay. um, as uh, longtime listeners may know, um, I am now in a sixth house perfection. Yeah, and within the yeah. first month of entering a six month a sixth house perfection, the sixth house is the house of um, uh, usually it's like health problems and various pains in the ass, but it is also the house of pets, which are a pain in the ass that are desirable. Oh, by the way, I have a new sixth house. Oh, not yet. Or do you want to just leave it at that? This I mean, is, your yeah, chart. He's, he's doing this setup. No, I mean, yeah. his natal uh, no, chart. I don't, I don't, know, I don't remember chart. if he shows his or not. Uh. <clears throat> but anyway, so within that first month of being in a sixth house perfection, I literally had a cat walk up to my office door and then just walk in um, and make itself at home as soon as I opened the door. Um, and so I said, okay, this is um, the sixth house is showing itself. I've never had that happen before. This is not my new cat. This is a neighbor's cat who decided to hang out with the person having the sixth house perfection. And then when I got to the sixth month from my birthday, so sixth house monthly perfection in a sixth house year, right? So double, um, <clears throat> the uh, a kitten was delivered about two weeks earlier than we thought uh, into uh, into our lives. And so I can go grab her. She'll hate yes. it, um, but she's adorable. And I'll be right okay. back. Oh, it's not pigs. It's the real, the real girl. I also have an Instagram. Do you Instagram. have the cat's chart? Here's the here's the video from oh. the Sphere and Sundry Instagram page. Honestly, I do not know how either of you are getting any work done. Okay, we need full screen on Austin now. Oh my gosh. So and so, this is the cat. Uh, this is What's Sumo. the cat's name? She's uh, she's going to be gigantic. It's a future name. So this um, is a she main, has a little a main eclipse coon? face. Oh, you hate yeah. it. You hate it too much. Want me to put you down? Aww. Okay, I'll put you down. Oh, she is so sweet. That was actually a really cute video. I forgot about the one that Kate posted on Insta. Sorry. Yeah. So, so we're just um, saying her name's uh, Sumo, right? Yeah, Sumo. Eclipse face. We've got like five other names. Copic. And it's a main coon. She's 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 Catholic, so she's got a lot of names. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it. So you got she her really from a breeder, and one of the side effects of that is you actually have an exactly timed birth chart, right? 
Yeah, we have an exactly timed birth chart and it's already, I'm like, catastrology is not really my specialty, um, but um, it's been shocking uh, how real, like we've only had her for about a month. Um, well, when to complete your been, perfection story, she has Sagittarius rising and you're, you're in a Sagittarius oh, sixth house perfection here. Yeah, my sixth house. And, and um, Kate's sixth house is Aries. And where is Aries for um, a shot? Where's Mars for a shocking amount of the, of the year? Yeah. Oh, it's in like, so Kate's having like big sixth house, act, sixth house activation, not from perfection, but literally as activated as possible by transit. Right. And was funny was the, um, again, like she, she was, uh, she was delivered like two weeks earlier. Uh, two weeks early, the uh, the breeder was like, "Yeah, I know we were on track to do this in a couple of weeks, but can you come get her right now?" And it was like, I think the second day that the sun entered Leo, so it's like, "Oh yeah, the sun is in a feline sign now where it's strong," and that was me by monthly perfection entering the sixth from the sixth, um, and so it was, you know, the astrology was crazy. And the experience of bringing her into our home has has uh, correlated with her birth chart in both fortunate and unfortunate ways. Um, so our, um, so you're gonna say the, um, uh, all right. Your so existing she, had, cat? she was born. Yeah, she was born right after a Venus retrograde station. Um, and part of our plan is we have um, we have a much older cat. He's he will be thirteen. Teen, um, right about now, honestly, we don't, we got him from a shelter, so we don't know exactly when he was born. And he was actually, what's funny is he was born right after, we know he was born right after the Venus direct station in Leo in 2007. Um, but what we wanted was to get him a buddy because he's kind of bored and we're really busy and we try to spend time with him, but we thought it would be, he's kind of bored and he's kind of lazy and we thought it would be useful to have uh, a buddy to like chase him around and get him moving. And, um, with, um, little sumo not having, or having, excuse me, having a, uh, Venus retrograde station. Our initial plans for Kitty Harmony have not gone exactly as we hoped. Um, I'm sure they will be friends, but not only not only did they not become friends swiftly, um, he actually had like his worst worst health issue within I don't know a year or two, like within a week of her arriving. Um, and so he, yeah, he had uh, vet stuff for basically a week, week and a half. Mm. He got to instead of instead of it being a, a joyous arrival, well, it was joyous because she's adorable and fun. Um, but we uh, we ended up having to take him to the to the vet several times, and so this actually created disruption in the house, which makes sense because as we now know, um, our our little kitten has Mars on the degree of kate's uh ic right oh. so the house right so it's mm. created like a little there's like literally kitty friction um in the house and of course mars rules kate sixth so the the astrology you know i'm not usually this is probably the only time anyone will hear me talk about uh kitty astrology but <laughs> yes. it really is like crazy good it's like crazy precise astrology it's not like oh yeah she's a taurus and she likes food right yeah uh, you know no, it's, it's the timing <laughs> that makes it so interesting 
in addition like to her our being charts, adorable. her charts, her bringing like bringing her chart into our lives and then pinging off of everybody's everybody else's chart. Like her Venus is on my moon. She I like her a lot. Um, and she hangs out in my office a lot. She's um, sleep. There you go. She is. She's sleeping on the things. Um, but um, it's, it's I actually, actually did, been, uh, did an episode of the Casual Astrology podcast with Cam White a few months ago on pet astrology and specifically cat astrology because we had a listener of this show who had a Maine Coon cat as well that they had a birth time for, and they have like an Instagram account for called Sylvia. The main coon. And uh Cam and I did this like theoretical exercise where we walked through all 12 of the houses trying to think about what they would mean from the perspective of a cat. And it actually was a really good exercise for understanding the significations of the houses at a deeper level by taking it out of a purely human context and putting it into the um, context of what would it look like for another being that has a different context when you're looking at that birth chart, and it was kind of an interesting exercise to go through. And so, as Kate just reminded me, um, one of the things that's interesting is so she has a stationing in Angular Venus, um, and so and <clears throat> every time she uh, she walks by anything even vaguely reflective, she'll stop and stare in the mirror, or even oh. if it's just like the shiny part of my computer. And it is interesting that this is, you know, it, it's a stationing angular Venus that rules the midheaven. Um, and this cat is getting a lot of publicity right now. Yes, that's true. She's yeah. so sweet. So, a uh, sad rising cat with Jupiter is the ruler of the ascendant in Capricorn in the second house. Uh, her most difficult planet is the Saturn in the third house of like siblings and neighbors, uh, Saturn and Nitro right. and Aquarius. Oh. Yeah, I thought I thought that was yeah, good. Yeah, she doesn't get on with her brother. Not getting along well with the other cat. It's it's a um, dignified Saturn. It will mature with time. Yeah. Okay. Once we get so Saturn will come back. It'll your cat will actually have a very early Saturn return in like December. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> because how old is Sumo? She's only like a few months old, right? When she born May. Uh, so she's maybe six like months. six. Yeah, sixteen, yeah. seventeen six. weeks. She's tiny. She needs a year or two to settle. And your other cat will adjust. I mean, when we adopted our He's third doing better cat, already. he is. Okay. They just they yeah. just sometimes they're just so moody and they just need time and the the new cat we brought in never became like besties with the two that we already had, but they certainly got to the point where they could all be in the same room together very comfortably. They just never curled up together. But I reckon Sumo will get into his heart eventually. Yeah, Boog is pretty he's pretty cuddly. I, I think once he realizes there's someone else to cuddle with, he'll get excited. Yeah. Yeah. So this brings We're up not an excited point just relaxed. that you can create charts for all sorts of different things, not just humans, but also potentially animals. And there can be an interesting side of that that's actually fascinating because what astrologers are dealing with is like time and snapshots of time and whatever being born at that moment in time, sharing some of the qualities of that moment. And you can do things like that, like not just look through the houses in the relational placements that a person has, but also things like synastry, like what is the synastry that the cat has with you uh, and your wife, but also what is the synastry that the cat has with like the other cat that it's not getting along with, and the idea that two entities can like um, clash or like not get along, not necessarily through any fault of their own, but through. Um, inherent things that are are hard to get around, or something like that. 
Mm -hmm. Well, and so one thing that I actually just realized, so I, you know, her saint name is Eclipse Face. Um, and I don't know if you could see, so I didn't, I didn't want to, she kind of doesn't like being picked up very much. Um, so half of her face is like, um, like yellow gold kitty blonde. And then the other half, um, is much darker. So I jokingly called her eclipse face and she has the nodal axis right on the ascendant descendant, um, Mm. axis, right? So there's literally the eclipse energy is right there on the ascendant. Yeah, she seemed to have like a white patch on the lower half of one side of her face and then real darkness around the other eye, which I thought was really special. Yeah, it, it, if I were to hold her up in a way that she would hate, you would see it's it's pretty much half and half. It's half like, and half, yeah. Um, yeah, it's like dark and light. So mm. sweet. And so, okay, Austin, you now have two cats. I have two mm-hmm. cats. Um, we can be friends. Chris, we can be friends. <laughs> Chris, when are you and Lisa getting a pet? Uh, we have a, a problem because I'm a cat person. She's more of a dog person. So uh, we've been at a stalemate. We need to work that out. We're still working on it. I think we're leaning more towards cat at this point because they're more self-sufficient, but we'll see how that goes. That's that's a very big commitment though, thinking more about this, yep. the idea of bringing a new f- family member into your family, but it having a chart and like um, yeah, that's a big that's a big step. That's gonna slow you guys down even more. Yeah. That's not helping the process. Right. Our two cats we got literally like off the back of a truck. Some lady had a box of kittens and we just we got we adopted two of them. So okay. we have no idea. We kind of know, know the month they were born in, and that's about it, unfortunately. Okay. Um, that would drive me yeah. crazy. <laughs> Be trying I mean, to they do- just that well, leads to the other like venerable art of, of cat chart, chart rectification, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, you can oh. – it's interesting because you can tell by their physical shape and their personality type. You can start to sort of say, oh, this is the moon cat because she always wants to be cuddled and she's a little bit more well-rounded and she's always eating. And then we have like the Gemini cat who is very curious and like the cliche, you know, curious cat – eats like a bird and really, really slender. Uh, and so you can sort of associate different types with them, but it's not as accurate, of course, as having the birth chart. Yeah. We yeah. don't know about the moon for our other cat, for uh, Bear. Um, uh, but we know he's Sun, Saturn, Rahu, and Virgo, and he really likes eating. He's really picky about what he eats. His digestion's not super strong. And he's, um, you know, he's kind of adorable and grumpy. Aww. Well, that's well good. you can see the like Venus stationing direct in Leo. I feel like that's that's an exaltation position if you are a cat. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um. Kelly has no comment on cat exaltation, essential dignity. No, I thought it was. I thought that was okay. brilliant. Um, and then there's some cheeky commentary going on um, in the chat so, box. But it's a good exercise in terms of, on the one hand, there's astrologers who would say like, oh, cat, cat is pet astrology, that's really lame. Or I would say you? those people, ha- I mean, if you have a pet, it's it's a big deal. Well, it's just realizing that astrology extends much further than people realize. Sometimes it's not just about birth charts, but also through inceptional astrology and looking at inceptional charts, you can apply astrology to all sorts of things. And in that context, it becomes a much broader study 
that you can actually learn more from if you are paying attention and applying it to many different things rather than just one area of life. Yeah, and it it was um, it was also from a human astrology point of view. Um, you know, there was a big sixth house, uh, almost unprecedented sixth house activations for both Kate and I. Right, and the sixth mm. house is supposed to be where pets are, and and mm. so it came to pass. Although I am still having my uh, randomly hurting myself sixth house stuff more than normal. Um, I I added uh, some some poison oak. Uh, to my collection of small irritations recently. Oh no! Nice, it's that's good. Totally par for the course this year. Uh, almost broke my toe, smashed my finger in the door, and and just about lost the nail. Um, somehow spattered um, cooking oil on my stomach and gave myself blisters on my stomach. And now, um, like first poison oak or whatever, poison oak, poison anything. Um, you know, in a decade, it's just little stuff. Uh, I'll I'll take it if it it's stays manageable. at this level. No yeah. problem. Yeah, oh, my back hurt a lot last week, last month, which is unusual. Yeah, well, I think getting a good a cat is a good uh, sixth house propitiation ritual. Then, in that context, uh, and I support those efforts. Um, I want to mention a few other things that happened on the podcast this month. One uh, had. Levant Laszlo on to talk about translating ancient Greek astrological texts. And one little cool thing to tie into some of our earlier discussions about the US chart that I thought was really um, interesting is he had this text from uh, Shadan, this ninth century astrologer who wrote in Arabic. And this is in episode 267 of the podcast. But I want to make sure people check out this episode because we released and and working with Levant, we released four free translations that you can just download and read. Like usually, you have to pay a bunch of money to like buy academic translations of text. But through what Levant is doing with his translation project, where he's basically like crowdfunding it through Patreon, he's able to release these translations for free. So one of them was this text called the Discourses with Abu Mashar on the Secrets of Astrology. Where one of Abu Mashar's students named Shadan just went through and recounted like a bunch of little anecdotes and things that he learned from his teacher or that his teacher said to him in passing. But one of the funny ones in terms of mundane astrology that I thought was really interesting um, was it was just one sentence that was translated, and it said, um, according to Shadan, it says that Abu, Abu Mashar he said when Saturn is in Libra and Jupiter is in Cancer. They always affect great changes in the world. And I thought that was really interesting. It made me think because we've been talking so much about the birth chart of the United States and the Sibley chart, especially this year. And of course, um, where were Saturn and Jupiter in 1776 and the founding of the United States? But of course, Jupiter was in Cancer and Saturn was in Libra. So I don't know. I thought that was pretty impressive because it it becomes a statement from a ninth century astrologer about some sort of like shared or collective wisdom that he'd gained, and then several centuries later, like seven centuries later, that turned out to be a relatively accurate statement. I think we can all say in retrospect. Yeah, and um, and that that pairing of Jupiter and Saturn, and the the reason that's exceptional, of course, is that it's <clears throat> both Jupiter and Saturn are simultaneously in their signs of exaltation. And so, Chris, didn't you time it out? Isn't it like a, about a century or so? But sometimes it'll skip a century. Isn't it something like that? 
Yeah, I tried to um, search and see how often that had actually happened over the course of the past thousand years, and I only came up with like twelve something, like a dozen hits, maybe tops. But um, sometimes they cluster together somewhat closely. Jupiter being in Cancer and Saturn uh, being in Libra, with Jupiter on a twelve-year cycle and Saturn on a thirty-year cycle. But some of those times when it happened were spaced out by like three centuries, by like three hundred years. Mm. So it's not that frequent. It's somewhat infrequent of a thing that happens if you're talking about a thousand-year period. So I'd say, given that, mm -hmm. that it's a pretty impressive statement to have made in the ninth century. That's really interesting. Mm. Yeah. So Can that, that happened again that, soon. <laughs> that's a good question. I do not win? look forward thinking. I think maybe Kelly, if you whip out your ephemeris, it'll take you a couple minutes to look that one up. Let's have a little look. We'll see. When is Saturn going to be in Libra next? It's our starting point. It, I'll it'll do that be a while. while you guys carry on. Let's see. Okay. I was I half joking. It might take you a while to look that up. Well, so my ephemeris only goes up to 2050, so I'm, I'm not going to be looking too far into the we future. We can check the next one, and that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah no well, dice. Yeah. No dice. Mean, it won't happen then. In the meantime, I just want to re-recommend if you haven't listened to that episode with Levant Laszlo to check it out, not just for those free translations of text, but because he's basically starting a new crowdfunded like open source version of Project Hindsight. And um, if you want to see him producing translations and translating all of the remaining Greek astrological texts that survive and then basically putting them out for free as PDFs, then consider kicking in like $5 or $10 or $15 a month. And then if he's able to hit his funding goal, I think he's going to dedicate himself to translating these texts full time. And that's kind of an exciting prospect to me since Project Hindsight wasn't able to complete that goal that it set out to do in the 90s, but it seems like somebody else might be able to pull it off. Yeah, so that would be an appropriate remedial donation if you have Mercury afflicted by Saturn. Yes, uh, propitiating to Saturn by that's donating great. to it. A translation project for ancient astrological texts. Right. Helping those poor texts buried by history. Exactly. Um, speaking of poor texts buried by history, the other episode I did this <laughs> month was on Tajika <laughs> astrology. Uh, you yeah. always laugh what in my transitional phrases. That was a good so, one. Yeah, it was pretty smooth. Um, so I did another episode on Tajika where it turns out that um uh, some texts on medieval Arabic astrology, uh, like Salah bin Bishr and Abu Mashar, were actually translated into Sanskrit in the 13th century, and then it started this long tradition of um, using like a form of what we consider to be Western astrology, but it was basically medieval Arabic and Persian astrology, which was then practiced in India for like several centuries and still to this day, where it's usually referred to as I don't know if you guys have heard of Varshapal. I don't know if I'm pronouncing mm -hmm. that correctly, but it's basically annual astrology where they do solar return charts, just like Western solar return charts, and look at things like perfections and stuff like that. It's actually pretty cool. Nice. So I would recommend checking that out just because it also um, came with a free ebook where Martin Ganston got this, um, what was it, not a donation, but he got a grant, basically a large research grant. And one of the things that allowed him to do is to actually publish this text. And they released the, the publisher, Brill, released it for free as a free PDF. So you can basically just download it as a PDF. And then you've got a full 17th century text on annual astrology and solar returns that you can just read. 
So I wanted to do an episode on that partially to promote that as a free re resource um, in terms of making astrology more accessible, especially for some of these texts that are otherwise usually very expensive, like a few hundred dollars to buy and therefore not accessible to everybody. All right, guys. Um, I think that's it then for this forecast. Are there any things like last month where I just like completely forgot to mention the ESAR conference moving online or any crazy things like that? What do you guys have coming up? Are you promoting anything? Are you doing anything in September? Or are you just trying to take cover oh, yeah. and like keep your head down? I actually do have two things coming up. Um, I've got my next online chart interpretation course where we'll be looking at the role of moon phases, fixed stars in birth chart interpretation, and also be touching on how sect can influence aspects. So that course starts Monday, September 14. And in September, September is like a back to school month for me with starting to teach again. So the other program I have starting is my group mentoring, which is a once a month meetup for uh, senior students and new practitioners. Oh my gosh. Thanks, Chris. That's very kind. So that's the- Nice website. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that's uh, that's thanks to Tony um, who does all of that. So the, yeah, if you go, um, the chart interpretation course is on the homepage and the fastest way to get to the mentoring, the group mentoring link, if you're interested in that is just via the calendar tab on the homepage. So that um, group mentoring is limited to uh, just 30 students and we'll meet once a month. We'll go through charts. We'll have a chance to practice. And uh, it, the focus for the September group mentoring is uh, timing techniques. So it's a chance to practice uh, making forecasts and doing predictive astrology. So that's what I have going on. Uh, what is what your you web website again? Yeah. Oh, it's kellysastrology.com. Okay. And I like that, that group mentoring model because I get a lot of people that contact me and ask for mentoring. Um, but I, I don't offer it, offer it anymore. I used to because there's no. I just don't have enough time with the podcast and doing six episodes a month and everything else and teaching courses. And a lot of astrologers, it seems like once they get to a certain level, get so busy that it's hard to do one-on-one -on -one mentoring. But I like that you're doing that with groups in order to make it possible to to have that that sort of connection outside of just personal consultations. Yeah, I think it's important. Uh, it, it's there's a level of it being practical, um, but it is also helpful for the student because, as we all know, we don't learn in a vacuum, and we actually learn from our peers as much as you know, learning from whoever might be leading the group. So the students really enjoy hearing not just how I might go about something, but how other people would approach it because there's always a few different ways to to come at any given thing. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and that's what I'll be doing this month as well, as well yeah. as the month before and the month after. That's how I teach my yearly classes. There's like all of the presentational stuff um, and the learn these techniques stuff, which is all in videos. But then we meet up several times a month um, and do live group sessions. So I'll be, I'm, let's see, we're in, right now we're in month five. Yeah, we're in month five of the eight-month program. And well, oh, we're at the end of month five of the eight-month program. And um, yeah, that's what I'll be doing, that and um, uh, uh, dragging phases 2.0 over, uh, uh, over the finish line. I'm looking yes, forward to that because people, excited. everyone's looking for that book. It's become like the hottest commodity in terms of astrology books because you can't get copies like anywhere. 
Well, you can. They're just super expensive. They're just like yeah, $500. It's like, it's like $1,000. <laughs> it's just so funny. It's so funny that like the a paperback is going for that. I mean, it's a compliment. Uh, somebody, uh, I think it was last year, somebody was super mad at me because they thought I was just like squeezing the market. Whereas it's literally just the secondhand market. It was originally sold for $25 like other books. Um, the second edition will be sold for normal book prices. Um, it's not going to be like, here's my new book. Give me $150. Because your publisher for the first edition literally did a limited print run and then you guys ran out of copies. Um, so that's part of the background. Yeah, but yeah, with this. Yeah, there was just a print run and then it was out of, um, out of print. Right. Um, cool. So you'll be doing that. What's your website again, Austin? AustinCopic.com. And you also have a very fancy and very nice website I'm impressed by. Um, I always love your partner Kate's web web design skills. Um, cool. All right. Any other news and announcements? No? All right. For myself, the only thing is I'm pretty much focusing everything on the podcast. I'm starting to take this a little bit more serious as like a full-time job. It used to be like my side thing, and I never expect expected this to become my primary thing. But now as now that it is, I'm trying to take it more seriously and put more research and effort into every episode I do, including sending out um, you know, equipment to get good audio and video for each interview I do. This month, we're going to start trying to upgrade uh, Austin Kelly's video so that we can get good, high-quality video as if we were in the studio, even though we're going to be doing the year-ahead forecast um, by distance, like through Zoom later this year in December and getting ready for that. Um, so if you want to support that work, then just become a patron of the Astrology Podcast through our page on Patreon, and that'll help out a lot. You get access to benefits like being able to access the live chat and watch episodes like this live where we have an audience of quite a few people who attended us today. And thanks to everybody who joined us in the chat. I appreciate it. And um, in general, thanks to everybody that supports my work with the podcast because I'm trying to create a resource where um, people can take almost like a university-level astrology course with this podcast for free essentially by covering all the different approaches to astrology like this month we covered Tajika astrology, so Indian astrology. We did an episode on translating ancient texts, and I did an episode on aspect patterns with Carol Taylor. So we're pretty much trying to cover everything. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks, guys, for joining me today. This was a lot of fun. My pleasure. Oh, Thanks, guys. My pleasure. Thanks to our audience for joining us as well. I love you all. Um, good luck in September. Uh, let us know how it goes. Write in and let us know your experiences and if there's anything we need to bring up and make sure we mention in the next forecast episode. And otherwise, I think that's it for the forecast for September. So thanks for watching or listening, and we'll see you again next time. Bye, everyone. Thanks to the patrons who helped to support the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to patrons Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, Marin Altman, Thomas Miller, Bear River, Catherine Conroy, Michelle Marillot, Kate Pallotta, Christy Moe, and Sumo Kopic. As well as the AstroGold Astrology app available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs available at honeycomb.co. The production of this episode of the podcast was also supported by the International Society for Astrological Research which is hosting an online astrology conference September 12th and 13th, 2020. You can find out more information about that at isar2020.org.
And finally, also Solar Fire Astrology software, which is available at alabe.com. And you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount on that software. For more information about how to become a patron of the Astrology Podcast and help support the production of future episodes while getting access to subscriber benefits like early access to new episodes or other bonus content, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.